zip lock that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. TC here. Welcome back to the Trap Draw. I would be remiss if I didn't thank our good friend, Mr. Jeezy, up front. Cody and Neil have been all over me on that. Some of the voicemail listeners as well. Speaking of Neil, Neil, greetings. Hello. Hey, we got a little crossover episode today coming out of the booth into the, I guess, the main feed. I mean, this is a hybrid of, of Perfect Club, of the booth, of just the regular shop sesh. I'm excited for our topic today, TC. Yeah, I am too. This is, uh, this is something we've been talking about for a while. Before we get to what the topic is, let's introduce the man who's kind of brought this topic to the forefront for us, Mr. KVV. Hello, sir. Schuster boys, so excited to be here with you. And one of my favorite topics, digging into the dirt of the NFL. We were, uh, and it's not just the NFL, we're, we're going to broaden this. Uh, we decided a few what months ago, we were kicking around this idea that how, how interesting it is in American sports, that how mysterious some of the owners are in American sports. And uh, maybe we not even go stick to American. Maybe we can go beyond that. But we are going to do a, a deep dive into one owner for each of us. We're going to sort of explain how they became wealthy, what some of their most nefarious deeds are, what some of the, the fan base feels about the person. Uh, so we're going to keep them a mystery. We want to keep you guys guessing, uh, but it's going to it's gonna pop, I think. This is going to be a fun one. Uh, I'll kick it back to you boys here. Neil, I think you're going to start us off uh, here. We're, we're going we're gonna to have a fun one today. Yeah. Before we get there, uh, let's thank our first sponsor, and that is Roback. Uh, I'm actually wearing a Roback polo as we speak. This is, this is my go-to one, the... Uh, Kind of navy and navy and lighter blue one. Looks gorgeous. Polo stripes, great, great collars. Roback understands quality. There's only one way to describe Roback: best fit, best feel. Fresh off the restock of their Azalea collection for the Masters, I've been I've been wearing beating that stuff up uh, here in Florida. It's been fantastic weather, mid 70s all week. But yeah, their performance polo just hits different. Uh, wrinkle free collars, nice. Performance Q zips are a game changer. You've heard Randy talk about them on here a bunch. Perfect for a morning of spring golf. And then their performance hoodies, stretchiest, comfiest hoodies in golf. I'm traveling tomorrow. I'll be wearing my, my Roback performance hoodie. It's my favorite thing to travel in. They are on the move. They got I know they got summer collection coming up as well. Give that Roback dog logo just a subtle nod to other people who get it. So head to Roback.com to get 15% off your first order and that's spelled R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. That's 15% off all polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and much more with code NLU or code TRAPJAW, I think, as well. Go either way with that. Um, first first purchase, 15% off, I believe. First purchase, correct, yes. DC, so, I, I know you're out there giving subtle nods in the airport. Tell your dogs out there. <laughs> you know what? It is. It, they are very uh, easy to identify. It's true. I, I, I see a ton of them when I'm traveling. So Easy. Identify, but without being too loud, right? Yeah. Sure. When, when I was at the Masters, I saw a lot of a lot of that, like Roback guys being like, "Hey, you're wearing the same shirt as me." Like, "Hey, a lot of a lot of pointing, a lot of that." Bro a Spider-Man gif. Boom, yes, boom. Exactly. Yeah, it, and it's actually code code trap t t r a p roback.com fifteen percent off your first order. So uh, I saw I saw P wearing one. Oh, I think he's on the Aussie squad rules. now. 
uh, Aussie Rules football game. He was at the the Essendon St Kilda game, I believe, sitting in the line drive section wearing a rowback hoodie. Very exciting. That? So, so Neil, you want to start us off with with your? Yeah, I was so jacked here? up, KVV, when you proposed this topic. I think that owners of an American culture right now are kind of the a bit. It's a bit of the the pinnacle of wealth right now. Do you want the the shiniest toy in the store? That that's what it is for these billionaires. And it's also it feels like with the you know economy being so up and down the last twelve months, it feels a little recession proof. It's the the last bastion of you know a money maker for the legacy media cable business. The TV rights deals continue to push the uh, you know the prices of these teams up. And I wonder if you know it's almost like is that going to keep going? I mean, we've seen it with the Commanders recently, and in the, in the price that they went for, and and in some of this conversation, we'll see how just how much that those prices have risen over the past 20, 30 years. Truly hard to lose money owning an American sports team. I mean, they will they're basically set up as socialist enterprises to, to lift all boats. <laughs> Which on that end, is there a risk though for baseball, especially with the RSNs kind of that? that money seems to be drying up or are they just going to have a short-term blip on the radar and figure out how better to monetize? Well, it's interesting. I, I think there, you would think logically there is, but then it, you know, with, with like Cohen and the Mets, like you always have this billionaire subsidy, right? Where it's like, Hey, if this guy's willing to spend the money, it doesn't, it doesn't Limited matter. Supply. There's only so many of these things. Yeah. And, and so he can kind of plug holes until he gets a championship team. And then they have the, you know, the rev share on that. And, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think that national TV contracts are going down. I, I agree that there probably is a saturation with the RSNs, but that's such a a complicated thing. I don't know if we want to get into that just just yet. Maybe maybe that's a, a, a future segment for this uh, for this series. <laughs> the the totally. most basic lesson you learn in like college economics classes is that the price of something is just always what someone will pay for it. And if you can find a sucker out there who will pay for it, that's the valuation of your team. And I guess all you, you need, need, all you need for bubble. a market is like two people. Yes. Right. <laughs> two people make a market for the, for the, if there is a bubble for pro sports ownership, it's that the prices are getting so high that there's only so many people that can afford it, especially in the NFL where they don't allow private equity uh, yes. to play a major role. So it really does have to be one individual with the majority of the, uh, of the stake. I think that NBA is probably a little different because they will let, you know, kind of institutional money get involved. Uh, but you look at like the commanders, it was like, man, that's a short list of guys that can pay six, $7 billion. Yep. They have to put 30% down. That is basically like what it, yeah, in cash, essentially you have to, you can't spread it out. You can't have it debt financed or whatever. You have to have 30%. And that's, 30% of 6 billion, you know, to have 2 billion or whatever up front liquid is pretty, it's a lot of money. And like, and you've got to prove that, that it's been in your account for like, it can't just magically appear. <laughs> There's got to be a chain of, of, of stuff. I think also as part of this series, we'll kind of, or, you know, what hopefully turns into a series, assuming the listenership likes it will be kind of updates, you know, if anything's happened on the owner front, in between episodes, we'll kind of fill you in on that. I think here of late, we've had the Bucks uh, selling some of their share uh, to the Haslam family, which they're not the subject of our any of the three of us uh, our deep dives today. But I'm sure we'll get into the Haslams at some point. Shout out uh, to Pilot Truck Stops. 
<laughs> Which is crazy, right? That the the house. I mean, is it other Haslam's besides uh, Jimmy and his wife? Because like you can't own like multiple NFL franchises. So like, how is that even? No, no, the Bucks. Oh, no. The Bucks. The the, uh, the NBA DJ's, team. Oh, DJ's NBA Milwaukee team. That, okay, that makes yeah. sense. I was like, yeah. I thought you were talking Sorry, about the Tampa yeah. Bay Bucks. So. Which who are who are purportedly for sale right now? Forget well. yeah, That's I think why it's I was son confused. More than more than the dad. Okay. Um, which I can't remember yeah. what Jimmy and John. I don't know. I can't remember the. And the go- the and then different. what the the brother is like the was the governor of Tennessee or is the governor of Tennessee? Yes, it's all sorts of that. So yeah, th- so that's been going on. So th- there's been all sorts of Snyder Redskins stuff where he's. I guess there's. We'll get into some of this, but uh, there's this other guy Brian Davis, who is is, is poking around, doing all kinds of media appearances, claiming he's got a seven billion dollar offer for the Commanders, uh, which no one believes is true. Like. NFL owners, when they're supposed to place their bids, have to essentially sign like a a gag rule where they're not allowed to talk about it. So the idea that someone was going around like appearing on Washington D.C. radio and talking about their seven billion dollar bid sort of is kind of a self own in that sense. And he had, he had some sort of failed conquest for another franchise at some point too, right? Like he was teaming up with Christian Leitner to try to buy some other franchise. Supposedly the Saudis are involved with him. There's all sorts of question marks and stuff there, and then. Of course, we had the Suns transaction uh, to the other uh, Matt Matt Ishbia, who who hates Dan Gilbert. Uh, another win like for a big enemies. mortgage. Yeah, exactly. Running the mortgage business seems to be a, a way to make a lot of coin in this uh, in this world. And then I saw something too about um, the biggest scumbag seems to be that Coyotes owner out, out in Arizona. They've like basically not paid rent to the city of Glendale on their arena. Allegedly, and uh, <laughs> allegedly, and but and I guess they're moving into Arizona State's collegiate facility oh, for the wow. next three years, and then they're trying to build their own arena with public funds. It's a fucking mess out there. So, at some point, we'll get into that one too. But, okay, Gretzky's not still involved in that ownership deal, is he? I don't think so. I think that evaporated after after Janet. You know, <laughs> yeah, allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> we're going to use allegedly a lot in this discussion. I think. Exactly. All right, Neil, kick us off here. Who do you got for our first pick? I went with. I figured we had to start with kind of the Godfather. Uh, we're going to start with Bob Kraft, Robert Kenneth Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots. I feel like he is the the blue blood owner. We have a few questions, kind of to to help us along here, but um, you know. I want to start with a couple quotes. I, I really enjoyed doing the research because I, everybody knows who Kraft is. I didn't really know, you know, how he made his money and, and his story. Uh, he also, he's also an, uh, a, a fellow lion, an alumnus of Columbia University. Wow. So I figured that would be a, a good That's place cool to start with, with a, a colleague of mine from uh, up in Morningside Heights. Uh, but I, I found some good research material leaning heavy on a 1993 Boston Globe profile and a 2017 New Yorker piece, of course, sourcing Wikipedia on a lot of the basic facts as well, which I know big J journalists hate, but tried to go down to the- uh, As long as it's source, Neil. As long as, long as it's source, you're, you're doing- To get a lot of my stuff. But I want to start with a couple quotes. So from that 93 Boston Globe profile, quote, a natural politician since childhood, class president at both Brookline High School and Columbia, Kraft likes people and has a knack for making them feel liked. While detractors see him as mainly interested in people that can do something for him, friends cite acts of previously unpublicized kindness as evidence of the kind of person he is, end quote. 
And then from John MacArthur Dean of Harvard Business School, quote, a classic entrepreneur with outstanding human qualities, including intelligence, integrity, and civic mindedness, end quote. So I wanted to start there. I'll give you a little background. So he's born in Brookline, as I said. He was raised in a modern Orthodox Jewish family, and his father wanted him to become a rabbi. And so his Jewish faith plays a heavy role uh, in, in kind of his business life and uh, kind of his rise to power. He also was kind of has a, I don't want to say a tortured history, but he wasn't able to play a lot of high school sports because of being an Orthodox Jew. So he always like, I think he regrets that a little bit. Um, he attended Columbia University where he played, uh, where the football field is actually named for him. It's Robert K. Kraft Field at Lawrence A. Wine Stadium, uh, a field that I you played guys on. Love, love the middle initial. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he he does love the middle initial. He also loves the uh, the, the French collars, the white with the blue shirts, which and the cuffs I, and the cuffs, which I always think looks really stupid. But that's what he shows up to every year at homecoming. Neil, did you ever, like, when you wrote papers at Columbia, did you ever use your middle initial to sort of fill no, out the... No, I've, I've never never got my Neil G. Schuster. Maybe I should start, though. <laughs> you should. Maybe start, start slow, like the, the newsletter, maybe, to put that out with the, the middle initial. He was, he's a big, you know, he's, he's very present at, you know, in Columbia athletics. Like, I've met him a couple times. He would definitely not know who I am, but um, he's usually around for homecoming, Apparently, with Columbia's losing tradition, he, he threatened to take his name off the field because he didn't want to be associated with a losing program. But that didn't happen. He did not play football at Columbia. He played tennis for a year, and he played sprint football, which is What's basically like football? Uh, for guys under, a, I, think, I think it's people under 170 pounds. Okay. So it's, it's real football. I actually looked up some videos on it. Do you guys want to know some other notable sprint football players? Yes, please. Donald Rumsfeld. Played sprint okay. So they still have sprint football teams at the military academies. Yep. And I believe Penn has a sprint football team and a couple other Ivy schools. I can't remember. And then some of like the NESCAC has some sprint football. When I covered the Naval Academy for a year, I, I covered the, re the regular football team. But the sprint football team was always right there practicing. I was sort of fascinated by the whole uh, thing. So Rumsfeld, I believe he played at Army. Uh, Jimmy Carter played sprint football uh, at Navy. I believe. And then Bo Biden uh, also played. Uh, I can't remember which academy, but it, it is a football. It was a total, total unknown, unknown for me. Unknown up until <laughs> now it's, now it's now, an unknown known for you. Exactly. Or a known, a known semi unknown. Well, for a long time, I thought it was just like flag football, but it's not. It's basically just like you can't be over 170, 178 pounds. So it's the all same the amount of guys. Yeah, same field? game. Otherwise, pretty much the same game. It's just a bunch of, of uh, little dudes. Do we know hard. what position Kraft played or what, anything about uh, his sprint football in life? Is that you know, I, do, I didn't get the position. Um, that's a good question, but I don't, I don't have the answer to that. I would imagine him being like, a, like an outside linebacker or maybe a corner. That, that seems to fit yeah. his personality. Neil, what's uh, you were talking about modern Orthodox Jew. Like those two things kind of seem clashing. Like what's like like modern Orthodox Jews versus non-modern Orthodox Jews. Is that basically like you can, you know, you're not like you're, you can use electricity on the Sabbath no, and that sort of you thing. You can't. I think the difference okay. is like, and I'm out of my depth here, but like the Hasidics, like that's full on Orthodox, right? Like you're doing it. We're doing it live. 
here in in Brooklyn. But I think mod like like TC when we grew up in Dunwoody, there was a Orthodox, I think a modern Orthodox Jewish yeah. like community down the street. I believe on Saturdays they're walking to temple. They're you know the, the Sabbath is like we're not messing with that. But then I think they're much more ingrained in everyday like modern society, mo- like the other six days of the week. But that is, listen, again, I'm, I'm out of my depth here. <laughs> That's kind of what I was understanding from reading with Kraft, though. But there, he's going, he had to do a bunch of temple stuff and, and religious stuff after school. So he couldn't play a lot of sports growing up. Uh, and that always, like, bugged him because I think he was a pretty good athlete. Keep in mind, this is the trap draw. We're out of our depth on literally on everything. everything. We've got yeah. the Mormons calling into the voicemail line. <laughs> Look, it's uh, all very respectful. Neither of you ever had to read The Chosen by Chaim Patuk in the class. That was like a big oh. uh, English class thing where it was like about whether this young young man was going to become a rabbi. And the, he had to study the, the Torah over and over and sort of his – that was – for whatever reason in Montana English classes, that was a big <laughs> thing that they – obviously probably because there was like 10 Jewish people in the whole state. So uh, they wanted to basically educate us into what we were missing out on. Well, let me move us along here. So he graduates in 1963 from Columbia. As I mentioned earlier, he was the class president. He married his first wife, Myra Hyatt, the same year, and then he attends Harvard Business School. So after business school and kind of during business school, he goes to work for his father-in-law at the Rand Whitney Group. So we're going to get into that shortly. In 1968, he gains control. It seems like it's a little mixed whether this was – he gained it in a – like he kind of forced his father-in-law – to like sell him the majority and like the, the ownership of the business and a leveraged buyout. Like I didn't, I think he took over kind of day-to-day operations. He's like, Hey, we need, we, we should be blowing this thing out and we're not doing it. Uh, and then in 1972, he founded international force products and the two companies combined to make up the largest privately held paper and packaging company in the United States. So this is basically where the money comes from. He takes Rand Whitney group, uh, and, and a little aside here for a long, long time, I thought Kraft was made his money from the Kraft foods. Like, I, I mean, understandable. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think that's fair, <laughs> right? I was just assumed it was Kraft foods. It's not, it's selling, slinging macaroni and cheese. No, it's, it's packaging supplies, right? All kinds of pack, packaging supplies. That's what Rand Whitney group did. And then he started his own version of that. So what's funny, uh, what, what I always think is a, a sign of wealth is that the Rand Whitney Group website just doesn't exist, right? Which is always sick where it's like, okay, you know, it's it's truly kind of a holding thing. Quiet and then the, money. what was it? The American, what is it? International Forest Products. What it, At first it was a lot of packaging stuff. And then he got into, as part of that business, like trading commodities. So tra- trading different types of, you know, raw materials that go into packaging stuff. So I think it, it became more financial trading stuff as as the uh, company got bigger and bigger. So Kraft currently is estimated to be worth about $10.4 billion. He's the, currently the chairman of the Kraft Holding Company, which was founded in 1998. Uh, it's the 326th largest private company in the United States. A uh, few other things on the Kraft Holding Company. So the portfolio now includes Rand Whitney Container, Container Board, and Waste Divisions. International Forest Products, which was, again, founded in 72. Uh, and the company, or I guess Kraft or Kraft Holdings, is the principal shareholder in three other container biz- businesses in Israel. Carmel Container Systems, American Israeli Paper Mills, and Ampol Enterprises. Also under the Kraft Holding Company, the Patriots, 
the New England Revolution, the MLS team, Gillette Stadium, privately financed in 2002 for $325 million. Patriots Place, a $350 million multi-use development surrounding the stadium. Team Ops Security Services, which does, uh, I think, outsourced or third-party security for large arenas, stadiums, and large events. Boston Breach, the eSports Call of Duty team. Boston Uprising, the eSports Overwatch team. And Craft Analytics Group, which I believe is like business analytics um, or something along those lines. Little known fact, Kraft also dabbled in concert promotion and was a part owner in a Boston TV station in the 80s, which he cashed out and I think made like 30 or $40 million, just like kind of got contentious and he sold out, but he, he made a, a, good, uh, a good amount of money on that. And he planned and ran an Elton John world tour back in the mid 80s uh, as well. And Elton John is still, still a very close friend and uh, did the first dance song at his recent wedding a couple years ago. Wow. What do you think the song was? Gosh, I don't know. But it could be that, Tiny Dancer from the Apparently the wedding was in New York and it was just a who's who of, of society showing up. He married a much younger doctor, I think a Columbia doctor. I believe she's a dermatologist or no, eye doctor. Excuse me. She's an eye doctor. Anyway, um, so let's get into, so that's kind of how he, how he came to power. Basically took over the father-in-law's business and, and then through a lot of like, you know, he's a good businessman you know, built it up and up and up and up and, and continued to, uh, to grow things. I think he had an eye on the Patriots, uh, for years. So next question or next prompt we have is what is the purchase price and when do you guys know the history of the Patriots? Uh, I do not. I remember Kraft bought them like somewhere in the, around the Parcells era. Is that right? Like he, um, that was right around like Bledsoe was the quarterback still. It was certainly pre like Brady stuff, um, pre dynasty. They, yeah. Weren't they being like, like, like somebody was threatening to move them yeah. out of new England. And yeah. So he bought them in, let's see. Um, 1993 was the year, but there's a lot that went on before that. So let me walk you through it. So Billy Sullivan is the godfather. He's the uh, guy that kind of founded the Patriots as an original member of the AFL. So he was kind of beloved in Boston. As far as I know, I'm sure we'll get some mass holes that disagree with that. But he ran the team uh, from the, I think, late 60s, early 70s through. Uh, and then in 1985, uh, you know, I think Kraft was sniffing around in, in the mid to late 80s. And Sullivan, I don't think he and Kraft got along. But Sullivan gets into some financial problems. Do you guys know what caused those financial problems? Or would you like to know? Do you, I would love to know. Yeah. So uh, he had a disastrous investment in the 1984 Jackson Five reunion tour, uh, <laughs> where he pledged the stadium as collateral. That's uh, that guy. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so after, so basically, Sullivan refuses to sell to Kraft. He gets into financial trouble. He he uses the stadium as collateral. He goes bankrupt. The stadium gets sold in auction, uh, and the land surrounding it to Robert Kraft. So okay. he basically buys up the land. And then Sullivan says, like, I'm not selling to you. Tagliabue gets involved. He's like, dude, you're like, you're, you're bust. You got to sell the team or at least you got to put together like a, an ownership group. You, you need some financial help here. Doesn't sell to, to Kraft. Uh, he tries to sell it to 50% stake to a guy that comes up in a lot of conversations, Paul Fireman. The uh, CEO of Reebok and your guy at uh, Liberty at National. Liberty National, yeah, he's he's he seems to be a sugar daddy uh, uh, throughout history. Uh, but that falls through. He ends up selling uh, the 
to a group of investors led by Victor Kayim, who is the owner of Remington Products. You guys may know them for their razors and clippers. And, you know, if you go to the barbershop, it's, it's like uh, grooming products. So Remington Products for $83 million. Victor and, and, and Billy try to move the team to Jacksonville. But Kraft blocks it because the Patriots, a couple years before, had signed a at least 10, but I think it was like 12-year deal where the Patriots' home stadium was exclusively the old Patriots stadium. And this place was a dump. Like, it was a piece of shit stadium, but they signed this exclusive, like, we are, this is our home stadium. And Kraft was like, you're not getting out of this. So he just ABV, plays hardball with them. What was your memory of, of Victor Kayam? Do you remember the whole thing with Victor? I mean, I definitely remember Victor Kayam and the Razors things, but he, um, he got into the sort of thing with, where Zeke Moat exposed himself to a reporter and Victor sort of like tried to make light of it and basically was like, oh, women shouldn't be in the locker room anyway. Uh, it was it, w- it was like a real big scandal in the NFL. Uh, yeah, so in, in 1990, Lisa Bolson, a Boston Herald reporter, sued Kayyem and the Patriots when Zeke Moat allegedly exposed himself and made lewd comments to her in the team room. Incidents stirred debate over female reporters in the locker room. Kayyem became the center of controversy when he came to the defense of the players' actions. The episode helped inspire the 2013 ESPN documentary, Let Them Wear Towels. Uh, he definitely became like a public enemy, like villain uh, when he, I can't remember what he said exactly about Lisa Olsen, but it was something truly like horrible. And it was like, oh, this guy's a truly scummy individual. <laughs> this guy's a piece of shit. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. So Sullivan sells, you know, half the team or uh, he sells the whole team or I think he's still a minority owner to Kayam. And then I just found in my notes, the stadium was awful, but it was, it came with an exclusive lease as the home of the Patriots through 2001. And then on top of that, Kraft owned the stadium for all other engagements. So the team, the owners of the team couldn't make money except for basically home games during, during the Patriots season. So like eight games a year, seven games a year. Like he had them by the balls and he wouldn't let them out of this exclusive lease through t- 2001. So Victor quickly, you know, gets his, it, it gets it blocked to move him to Jacksonville. So he sells out. So Victor promptly gets in financial trouble himself and sold the team to James Bush Orthwin of the uh, Anheuser-Busch family, uh, who offered Kraft $75 million to break the rights to the team, um, like to the lease on the stadium, and wants to move the team to St. Louis. Uh, and apparently Cronky was involved as well. He wanted to do of the same thing. Of course he was. <laughs> um, and so they both come, and they're trying to move the team. And he says, absolutely not. So then Kraft and... And Kraft offers Orthwin $172 million bid for the team. It was the highest amount paid for an NFL team at the time. And the deal was masterminded by his son, Jonathan, who was fresh out of HBS. And I think he was a McKenzie guy or, you know, at a consulting firm. Uh, Orthwin says yes. And that is how Kraft comes to own the Patriots and the stadium and all the land surrounding the stadium as well, which I think plays a big role in why he's been so successful with the team. According to the Hartford Current, Orthwin turned down a bid from Tom Clancy and Paul Newman, who wanted to move the team to Hartford, Connecticut, and a $200 million offer from Stan Kroenke, who also wanted to move the team to St. Louis. But Orthwin knew Kraft would go to court uh, and he would ride for the team uh, location covenant. Um, Kraft still Could you imagine not having team. an NFL team in Boston? Or I, I mean, I, like, I guess Foxborough is like, you know, it's basically, it could be in Hartford, it could be in Rhode Island or Providence or whatever, but like not having a team in New England feels a little bit sacrilegious, right? 
So he gets the team, though, right? And he feels like he overpaid. And so he'd immediately, they kind of are in a little bit of trouble because the stadium's so shitty and there's nothing else, like, around it. That They had a horse track down there, but it was kind of a seedy, not developed area. So within a year or two, Kraft's already, like, you know, he's trying to get the city of Boston or Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts, to help build a new stadium. They're balking. They're saying, we, we you know, we're not going to help you. You know, you're a billionaire. Do it yourself. So Kraft signed a deal to move the Patriots to Hartford, Connecticut. It was all signed. It was ready to go as the state offered $374 million to finance a new stadium. He backed out like last minute due to delays, but also locked in a $70 million uh, MA, like a loan or infrastructure. He got $70 million from the Massachusetts infrastructure budget, guaranteed NFL loans and commitments from Boston, from the Boston business community to buy luxury box rights to build a new stadium in Foxborough. And I think Gillette stepped up to the plate in a big way as well. So he kind of held, it sounds like he held the state of Massachusetts hostage, which sounds like probably what you have to do up, up in the, uh, up in that scene. So it was very close to the Patriots becoming, you know, being, being in Hartford. I think everything was signed, sealed, delivered, but then he, you know, kind of got cold feet at the last minute and got the money he wanted from the government. Interesting. They, well, they had, they had spent all that money on the big dig, you know, they couldn't afford to be given money for uh, the, the greatest public works project in U S history, the big, dig. Yeah. So. but it sounds like to Kraft's credit, like he, they got the stadium built as an anchor piece. And then I think that they've done a really, you know, a lot of work to uh, build up the, the, you know, shopping and kind of the, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like one of the models for like the mixed use. I think he was like the first one to to prove that model works. And, and I think he makes it like, that's where he's been able to make a lot of money, you know, leveraging the Patriots into like just being a real estate developer. Uh, And it sounds like, again, like I always thought his son, Jonathan was kind of just, you know, nepotism at its finest. Apparently that dude is a shark. Like he is sharp elbowed, gets things done, like really, really smart has like a gnarly temper, goes hard at people. Like he kind of drives the ship. And so uh, we'll get to the succession plan in a minute, which is something that's important for a lot of these NFL teams because as you've seen with like the Tennessee Titans, like when some of these like old billionaires die and they have like three families and they don't have a succession plan, it's become, it actually got, I think, written into like uh, rules with the NFL that they have to have a succession plan now uh, so that there isn't a big, you know, power struggle for it. With the Saints are another one where the you know the the second wife and the granddaughter are, and it's like a, just a huge awesome old Southern <laughs> battle. <laughs> it's so New Orleans. It's very and New Orleans. I think I think Kraft with like Patriot Place and all that. It seems like it was the first example of doing this in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, kind of to where like it worked. Like I think people had done similar stuff in you know in in city centers, but doing it out in the suburbs in the middle of nowhere. Hey, like if you build it, they will come, kind of thing. Well, I think he was hamstrung a little bit. The stadium was already there, yeah. right? Like they had, it was a crappy complex, but he owned that land. So I don't think there was really, it was either somebody, some city is going to woo me with a big, you know, guaranteed money or, or financing or tax breaks or whatever, or we're going to, we're going to build the stadium here. And I think that was some of the pushback originally from the city and some of those businesses. It's like, yo, the stadium's down in Foxborough. We don't really want to like, th- that doesn't do much for us. Right. And then I think the Boston community, the threat of them leaving or going farther away was was enough to get people to step up to the plate. So Kraft says of the Hartford offer, this is from the uh, the Hartford current. The deal we had was a tremendous deal, Kraft said. 
looking back to that time, I hope people in Connecticut feel I made a responsible decision that that was in the best long-term interest of both parties. I cherish the support we get from Connecticut and welcome it and hope they understand we did the right thing. We have tremendous fan support in Connecticut, especially in the Hartford area. They've really been great to us, and I hope the fan base there enjoys what we're going, what's going on right now with the team and feels they're a part of it. We welcome them, end quote. So uh, it seems like Kraft was, has been a, a master at playing the long game and getting what he wants. And he's, he's very, like, it seems like he want, likes to be out front, but he, he tries to act like he doesn't, you know? But I think he's very, very good at uh, the public relations stuff. So, you know, I think he's a good, probably a good counterbalance. He's, he's pretty soft-spoken for the most part. It's almost like he likes to be on camera, but he doesn't like to say anything. Whereas you've got Jerry Jones, who's almost like, uh, you know, the opposite of that. I think those two kind of, if we're looking at the spectrum of NFL owners, I think those two are counterweights in that way. Love it. He's he's definitely gotten earned the reputation, certainly when I was covering the NFL, as like, you know, he and Jones being like the shadow commissioners, right? Like Jerry Jones, like mostly gets that, but Kraft is really the mover and shaker behind the scenes who can sort of lean on you know, some of the older families and make them sort of vote with certain things. He's, he's definitely been a huge force in guiding the direction of the NFL over the last, you know, 20 years. Quietly form a, a coalition or a, you know, a voting block of sorts. Any non-savory elements? I mean, this was pretty positive. There are a few, yes. Uh, so any infamous moments of note? So this is straight from Wikipedia. Kraft was among 25 people facing first-degree misdemeanor charges for soliciting prostitution at a day spa in 2019. Kraft's attorney electronically entered a not guilty plea and later submitted a court filing where Kraft waived arraignment, pled not guilty to all charges, and requested a jury trial. A memo filed by Kraft's attorney revealed that hidden cameras had been installed when investigators entered the facility under the guise of a bomb threat. A Palm Beach County judge ruled that prosecutors could not use the videos in their case citing privacy concerns. A Florida appeals court also ruled that Kraft's constitutional rights were violated and all charges were dropped. Uh, so it sounds like the, um, what was that place called? The uh, Orchids of Asia. The Orchids of Asia sting. It sounds like the, the authorities fucked that up pretty good. Um, but yeah, listen, I think it was tough that, that Kraft got caught up in that. I think his, his, First wife, longtime wife had had passed away recently. Myra. And that was a she you was know, big she was beloved, I think, by you know, within the NFL community. And I think he was legitimately heartbroken. Not to I don't think that excuses uh, no, it doesn't, <laughs> but uh, the strip joint rub and tug. But it's I think what's interesting about craft now is like, and this kind of goes along the lines of another prompt we have, which is do fans hate them, love them, or indifferent? I would say he's beloved by fans because he wins. And I think, and he's even said, like early on, he clashed with coaches. Like he and Parcells didn't get along. He was a he even said he was like a little too uh, hands on in the beginning. He he treated it a little bit like he treated some of his other businesses. So according to that 2017 New Yorker article, Kraft admitted he micromanaged Parcells. Quote: Years later, Kraft blamed the riff in part on his desire to micromanage the team, telling USA Today, "Look, I was a new owner. I had a lot of debt. I had stardust in my eyes." So I think early on, like things could have gone south for him quick. Um, and then he hired Pete Carroll. That didn't really go that well. And then he uh, brought in um, uh, Belichick, right? And so I think Which, he kind of took Neil, his hands off. whole the thing, field. what's the relationship between, was Woody the, the, the owner when the Belichick Jets thing happened? 
Was he the uh, owner? Yet? No, he wasn't. Um, okay. It was the the oil guy. I can't remember. Um, oh, Hess? Or oh, no, no, no. Hess was Giants. I'd have to look it up, but I think because Belichick then I think he went to did he go to Cleveland? Yes. And then he came from Cleveland to the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Nobody signed with the Jets. Signed with the Jets and then resigned after one day. Yeah. Basically. Okay. So. Um, well, I don't I don't really know the story there, but I would say like if you were going to give Kraft deserves a ton of credit. And one thing I, I think he does, he started, he learned from his mistakes early on. And I think he, he's done a really good job of like putting personnel in place. Uh, like, and this is me before this research, I was always like, oh yeah, he's got his son running things. Like obviously like massive eye roll, but it's like, no, his son is like a really, really good, you know, operator. And then I think once his son kind of got up to speed in the mid nineties, I think he had a lot of say in, you know, coaches, GMs, and and kind of the the team aspects of things, and allows Kraft to kind of be the, you know, man behind the curtain, or just stand there in his, you know, his cufflinks and French collars and hang out. Uh, the other thing, with- I guess, not really infamous, but interesting. Guy's a massive shoe head. He's a sneaker head. So, and I've noticed this too up at Columbia games. Like he's always wearing some type of like limited Jordan or like you know, kind of limited release color or something. So he's always wearing sneakers, loves wearing sneakers, uh, all his wedding pictures. He's wearing sneakers, uh, on, you know, at his, at his wedding reception. Let's see. So according to the, the other, I guess, infamous moment recently was 81 year old Kraft married 47 year old Dr. Dana Bloomberg, eye doctor at Columbia, uh, in a star studded wedding on October 14th, 2022 in New York. Al Michaels introduced the bride and groom. Apparently it was Elton John's idea and he played, at the wedding as a wedding gift uh excuse me ed sheeran played the first dance song guest list included bon jovi randy moss tom brady david zaslov drew bledsoe ari emmanuel roger goodell adam silver ken langone sherry redstone casey wasserman and kenny chesney (laughs) incredible i i feel like if there's one thing this is a personal opinion it seemed like throughout the late 90s, early 2000s, Kraft was very much behind the scenes or not saying a ton, but being very, like a very visible owner, but a man of few words. And as he's gotten older, it seems like, I don't want to call it a midlife, maybe a late life crisis. He seems to be wanting to be in the scene more, if that makes sense. And and I don't know if that if you would credit that to like, hey, you only live once and the guy's trying to soak it all in, like good for him, like what a run he's had. But he's definitely feels like he's been much more prevalent from a social standpoint uh, in, in places where you think like, what's an 81-year-old guy doing here? So, and I don't know. I mean, now it, it, what's going to be interesting is it, yeah, Brady's gone. You know, Patriots aren't, are kind of in a, in flux. Belichick's what, like 70, 70, probably older than 70. 72, 73. So, you know, what's, is, I can't imagine Kraft's down for a rebuild, Right. Um, like, I, I don't know what the future is for him as a day-to-day input in the uh, operation. So the succession plan, there was a clear line of succession with Jonathan Kraft, uh, to step out of Bob's shadow. Uh, he's been with the Patriots since 1994 and now is president of the team. According to the Boston Globe, quote, he lacks met, he may lack some of his father's charisma and taste for celebrity. His temper may run hotter as those he has verbally accosted over perceived slights have discovered. And he has yet to embrace the virtues of forgiveness. He remains highly contemptuous of politicians and pundits. He 
he believes have wronged him in the past 20 years. But on the day of Jonathan Kraft's succession, the dynasty will pass to a sharp-edged chief executive whose focus rarely wavers from his father's passions, family, philanthropy, and making it big in business, whether it's recycling cardboard or chasing Super Bowl titles, end quote. It sounds like Belichick's going to hang around till, like my guess is he's going to hang around until he breaks the all-time wins record, and then Jared Mayo is like the 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 heir apparent. It sounds like interesting. I don't. I'm not sure that they'll just hand it hand it over to Mayo for the succession plan, but it'll be interesting to see. And one one more note on Jonathan. He's known for leading the NFL's digital initiatives, including e-commerce uh, with Fanatics. So he's already pretty plugged in in the owner circle. I think it'll be a very smooth transition. And just to tie a bow on things, again, Kraft bought the team for 172 million dollars, which he thinks he's still overpaid for. And estimates. I mean, this is before the Commanders deal. Value the Patriots at 4.4 billion. So you know, I think he's all. I would say this to to wrap things up. I wish more owners were like Kraft. Like, yes, he probably has his faults. It seems like he has a massive, you know, like quiet ego, right? Like, I think he was very on the scene in Boston. Like, there was a, a a note I read in that Boston Globe piece of like. His wife threw him a 50th birthday party at the boss. They rented out the Boston Opera House and there was a big like kerfuffle with the cast because they started the show and everybody was still socializing in the lobby. And so the, the, you know, the opera was like, you know, playing to an empty house and then everybody started flooding in loudly and it was just like uncouth. Uh, and apparently it was a big problem, Boston high society. So it seems like he really <laughs> likes to socialize. He likes to, you know, he likes to be known. Uh, he likes to have his name on things. But at the same time, I think like the quote I opened with, he does seem to have civic mindedness. He's, he, I think he saw buying the Patriots as like a way for him to give back to the city, keep the team in Boston. I, this, this franchise should be better and I'm the guy to run it. And you know what? I think he's backed all of that up. So I, I, give, I give Mr. Bob Kraft a ton of credit. One thing to tie a loop on, Leon Hess was the was the Jets owner. Yeah, the Hess guy. Okay. Yeah. I think Woody. he was yeah. the the owner and then he died. I got a whole listen, Woody Johnson's locked and loaded for the next segment, the next episode. I'll just tease that. No right spoilers. Now. No spoilers. Uh I am fascinated by this gets into a little bit of his thirst for celebrity, like his friendship with Meek Mill, the rapper, like, is that sort of like a genuine friendship or is he like trying to sort of get, get with the youths, uh, and, and get beat down with the kids? Uh, never quite figured that out. Uh, it is, it is, uh, I know it's just, it, there's just some, the last five years have been like, what, you, you, a lot of double takes of like, why, why are, what's, what's the point? What are you doing that for? Right. And, you know, I, I think some of it may have been like, He's lonely, and and some of it is like, you know what? More power to him. The guy's got more money than he knows what to do with. He doesn't want to just go sit in a castle. He wants to, like, he gets, it seems like he's an extrovert, and he gets juice from meeting people and, and uh, you know, hanging out with a, a diverse set of very famous people. Um, that seems to be kind of his his thing. So good for him. My one Bob Craft anecdote, I'll say I – uh, I didn't meet him, but I was in the locker room when the uh, Patriots won, I want to say the Falcons uh, Super Bowl. And he was down there and he had a, a box of cigars where I'm sure like each cigar costs like more than my mortgage payment. And he was handing them out to all the players. I think they were like 50 year old cigars that had been kept in like a super duper humidor. And uh, so he was 
he was clipping the cigars and giving them out to, and so um Julian Edelman got the first one because he was sort of the the MVP of that Super Bowl and I was like man this is this is a different life uh, this this billionaire life right here well, some people would say Shanny was the was the MVP of that Super Bowl some <laughs> I can't go there, TC. I don't want to bring Shani into this. I know we'll be here for hours. So I will. I will. This will be my final bow on this one. But I, I think this 2017 New Yorker piece was really good. I'd encourage people to read it. And this quote kind of summed it up for me. So, quote: Today, Kraft's public persona is that of wise and optimistic cheerleader, the owner who remembers the names of all his players, remains responsive to the demands of fans, signs the checks, and otherwise stays out of the way. It's not the only way to build a successful team. Consider the man who might be Kraft's polar opposite, Jerry Jones, a former oil man and owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who, after initial success in the 1990s, was accused during a stretch of lean years of meddling with personnel decisions and scouring the brand. This year, with his team resurgent and buoying the league's flagging television ratings, Jones was lauded for his role in drafting two stellar rookies, the quarterback Dak Prescott and the running back Ezekiel Elliott, end quote. So I guess there's more than one way to do it. You could argue that that Jones has been just as successful if if the measure of success is growing the financial value of your franchise. But I think if if we're going by wins, I think Kraft's more quiet behind the scenes role would be would be the one I wish more owners would take. Interesting. The the ego tussle between him and Brady and Belichick, sort of the triumvirate of the Patriots' success, has been the subject of a lot of really great uh, pieces that my friend Seth Wickersham has written. He has a, a great book. Uh, what, you know, uh, it's better to be feared that uh, any Patriots or any really NFL fan should check out. It's like a great deep dive into what the NFL is like. And there's a lot of uh, even more Bob Kraft stuff in that, if you're interested. So I would encourage people to do that because he, you know, he in some ways backed down when, uh, you know, Brady, he, Brady is the person who has kind of made, the franchise in a lot of ways, right? They, Brady's probably increased Bob Kraft's valuation by billions of dollars. And in the end, like Belichick wanted to part ways with him. And Brady thought really that, you know, Bob would choose uh, Brady in the whole thing. And he was like, no, like Bill runs the football team. And, and that's ended up kind of, you know, being why Brady left. Cause he's sort of like, like you have to choose one of us or the other. And, uh, and ultimately Kraft in the, I, I think a kind of a pretty powerful moment of, you know, removing ego from it, basically saying like, well, I, Bill, I've trusted Bill to run the football team. So he gets to continue to do it. A lot of owners wouldn't have done that. They would have said, I'm keeping my old quarterback. You know? So I did have some stuff from, from Seth's piece in here, a recent piece. So, and, and this is a final like prompt we had, do they have power within the league or are they riding the owners like other owners coattails? It sounds like Kraft is the dude, uh, you know, of the 32 owners. Uh, and, and like we said earlier, the counterweight to Jerry Jones um, and from Seth Wickersham and Don Van Natta, quote, NFL owners voted 31 to one on Tuesday to permit their compensation committee to open negotiations on a new contract with Commissioner Roger Goodell, but not before two of the league's most powerful owners, Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones and New England Patriots, Robert Kraft engaged in a heated exchange league and ownership source uh, sources told ESPN. The sources said Kraft joined the overwhelming majority in strong support of the measure, with Jones the lone dissenter in the owners-only session, eventually telling Kraft, don't fuck with me. Kraft replied, excuse me? Don't mess with me, Jones said. The measure then passed, sources said. And then from SI, Jones is quoted as saying, it's probably accurate that I did express myself in probably a way that's not in good taste, Jones said. So it seems like after 20, 
25 years, there was finally a little bit of a, a blow up in that, that closed door meeting. Love it. Great stuff, Neil. Awesome. Neil, thank you. I'm going to take it, take it southward for us. Where are we going? Um, Where are we going, TC? We're going to Miami Gardens. Ooh. I hesitate to call it Miami because it's not Miami. It's not Palm Beach. Uh, although I did use a lot of the Palm Beach post for some of this research. We're, we're doing Stephen Ross. Stephen Big Michael Poppy. Ross. Yeah. A, uh, Michigan man. A Michigan man. You took the words <laughs> right out of my mouth. Uh, net worth Steven, between... Stephen, don't call me Rick Ross. <laughs> uh, net worth between nine and twelve billion per Forbes uh, puts him in the mid two hundreds as far as richest dudes uh, in the world. Definite power player in the league. We'll just get that right out of the way. Credible businessman, probably a go to as far as you know real estate investments and, and real estate strategy and stadium strategy and all that. And you know, I think he's probably middle of the pack on media exposure. You know, doesn't really say too too much as far as like he's he's not afraid to be quoted in something but he's not really necessarily out front he's got some more you know visible people in the ownership group which which we can get to but you know he he often gets picked like like picked up in page six of uh the new york post you know palm beach post society circles that sort of thing so i guess we'll start at the at the very beginning here he was raised in detroit uh, in a Jewish family, moved to Miami Beach in high school. Um, kind of an interesting combo there. He then attends the University of Florida for a couple of years before transferring to Michigan. Where he finished out his undergrad, graduated with a business degree there, uh, which we'll get to later on as well. Then he got his JD from Wayne State University in Detroit. And then he got his Master of Laws in Taxation from NYU Law. I didn't even know that was a thing. Master of Laws and Taxation. Then he basically, uh, so his uncle, big, big inspiration for him, Max Fisher was his name. Ironically, the namesake of the Ohio State, aka Buck Tech, Fisher College of Business. And so Max Fisher was, he financed both of his postgrad degrees. He was an advisor on the Middle East and Jewish issues to every administration from Eisenhower to Clinton. He played football at Ohio State. He, uh, he sold like a, he started a family oil business with his dad, I think eventually sold it to marathon, invested that into real estate. Uh, Detroit symphony hall is named after him. He, he owned the Irvine ranch out in LA for a while. He bought it for $337 million and sold it six years later for a billion. He was the oldest member of the Forbes 400 when he died at 96, he was deep into Republican politics and just, just a huge role model. So I think that that goes on to, you know, kind of some of Stephen's philosophies on philanthropy and giving back to your alma mater and all that, which we will get to because there's a lot more there. Uh, so 1966, he graduates NYU, begins his career at Cooper's and Librand, which is, you know, eventually is what is known today as PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers. In, in, in Detroit, in 68, he moves to NYC to go work for Laird, which... Uh, you know, kind of a finance shop up there, uh, became G.H. Walker and company, George Herbert Walker, uh, Bush's great, great grandfather, I think. Uh, and then he went to Bear Stearns in corporate finance and got canned. He was clashing with a superior, got fired. So it, that kind of puts him on a path to go into business for himself. His mom lends him some money. 
and he leverages his tax knowledge to start invest to start advising his own book of clients on how to use federal incentives for affordable housing as tax shelters, which uh, really? again, this yeah. <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah, this will, this will again be a very, uh, very important salient point here later on. And, and worth noting, it's not illegal, but that doesn't mean it's not fucked up. Is <laughs> is my first impression of, of that topic. Yeah, I think you know, late sixties, early seventies, federal governments putting all sorts of incentives and subsidies in place for affordable housing, you know, kind of big, big, you know, big developments, all that sort of thing. So he's he's really writing the book on that. If you don't like it, change <laughs> close the loopholes. <laughs> exactly. In 1972, he founds the Related Companies, which uh, it's now a $50 billion real estate company. Or I oh guess they have God, assets that's of $50 him? billion. Dollars. Yes. I see their name on like every building in New York. Yeah. So they have, they manage equity capital on behalf of sovereign wealth funds, family offices, labor pensions, um, public, you know, public employee pensions, all sorts of stuff. Neil, notable developments include the Time Warner Center now known as the Deutsche Bank Center there at, at Columbus Circle. He actually has a penthouse or he had a penthouse apartment, which he since moved to Hudson Yards. They developed Hudson Yards, yep. the, which is the largest real estate development in U.S. history. God, Hudson Yards is so soulless. It's it's nice, but it's just like it's so isolated from everything and and new and just not not my not my speed. Very nice, but just it feels like a a you know a massive corporation did it yeah they uh which yeah the time warner center i went down a whole wikipedia wormhole on that like i guess that used to be actually reading the the whole madison square garden thing that was in the new yorker uh, a month or two ago about like penn station and moving that eventually and all that like i didn't realize that there was a big exhibition hall right at the site of columbus circle like that was that was like the big convention center in town pre Javits Center and all that back in the fifties and sixties. And then that's what, you know, that's the land that Time Warner Center sits on now. Uh they also own like the Cosmopolitan in Vegas. They own the 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 sign or the like the building that the Sitco sign is on, uh outside of Fenway. They own that. They own all sorts of stuff in Boston, plenty of stuff in in, in South Florida as well. Uh they also own Equinox gyms, hotels, they own SoulCycle. Uh, they are deep, deep, deep into uh, like Momofuku, David Chang's restaurant empire of sorts. Uh, I know they're, they're trying to get that so, into, yeah. Question. So basically he has all this tax knowledge, starts advising people on how to, you know, hit the loopholes, you know, and then he takes that money and starts pouring it into real estate. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He starts basically getting parts of these deals or getting um, like, you know, he was successful first year. I think he made 150 K in whatever you know, 1970 or whatever. And then, yeah, ends up just pouring it back into real estate. I'm sure, you know, puts together some funds and all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, just going from there. So he stepped down in 2012 as CEO. He's still chairman. We'll get to all the dolphin stuff, but just want to talk about his business career here. Stepped down in 2012 as CEO. He's still the chairman. He's a giving pledge guy. He's he said he's going to give. You know, Neil. I know you're a giving pledge guy as well. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, he's going to give away half of his of his wealth, but you know, makes you question some things as we get to that 
here. Uh, he's on the board of the Lincoln Center, the Guggenheim Museum, the Urban Land Institute, Cornell Tech, the Jackie Robinson Foundation, deep into sustainable cities research. He was deep into the, the uh, NYC Olympics push in 2012. Um, but anyway, so Dolphins, all right? In 2008, he buys 50% of the team from Wayne Heisinga, uh, plus the stadium. God. $500 million. Heisinga was was what? Uh, waste management? or And Blockbuster. Blockbuster, okay. that's right. Blockbuster. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, massive so, golfer. He's, uh, yes. he, I think, is responsible for uh, Frederica in Sea Island. And okay. Is he still uh, with us, Wayne? No, he, he died. Passed. Okay. Yeah, he died. But uh, apparently he just used to live on his private jet, like flying – either flying to meetings or flying to play golf. I think that what's that course up in North Carolina in the, in the mountains diamond, uh, diamond, uh, it's that one. And then Congaree, same, same dude, you know, the, I think Heisinga had something to do with that too. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. All right. So some context with the dolphins in this time period, they're coming out of the post Saban stuff. In 05, they drafted Ronnie Brown, Gus Ferrat, and AJ Feely dueling for starting quarterback after they they dealt a, a second round pick to Philly for, for Feely. They had the Breeze flirtation and then Culpepper. And Saban leaves at the beginning of 07. Uh, KVV's boy Cam Cameron gets hired. Uh, <laughs> Parcells comes in as EVP, starts buying groceries, fires Randy Mueller and Cam Cameron. Brings in Tony Sperano. Uh, Dolphins try to turn over the roster. They release Zach Thomas, trade Jason Taylor, draft Jake Long, passed on Matt Ryan with the first pick. They drafted Chad Henney, uh, which, side note, what a career he's had. Um, yeah. they, Mich- they, Michigan it, man. Yeah. The Jets release <laughs> Chad Pennington to sign Brett Favre. The Dolphins then sign Pennington. Like, there's, there's so much crossover between the Jets and the Dolphins during all these years. Then they start running the Wildcat, uh, Ronnie Brown and Ricky Williams. <laughs> they lose in the playoffs to the Ravens. Like that was like a fun, just like, what the fuck's going on? Like, Remember when the, wild, the Wildcat was going to revolutionize uh, yeah. the NFL? It was like a year when everyone was like, oh, should we run the Wildcat too? No, you should probably not run the Wildcat. <laughs> yeah. So this is all kind of, you know, uh, happening in the periphery as he's buying the Dolphins. So, 2009, he purchases an additional 45% for $550 million. So the total deal is like $1.1 billion. He's since added Gloria Stefan, uh, Venus and Serena, Mark Anthony, a few others as minority owners in the team. Good for them. (laughs) What is, can I ask, like, because you're seeing it with the commanders now too, like with Magic Johnson, what is the purpose of the celebrity minority owner? Is that to take heat off the money guy? Is it? Is it like, what does that do for them? Like, is it just them trying to help their friends out? Like I'm, I'm uh, maybe that's an obvious question, but I, I see it happening more and more of like, Oh, an ownership group like the Dodgers, but led by magic Johnson. It's like, well, it's not his money, but like, does that just make it easier for public appeal? I think part of it is that I think it's like, if you need an influx of cash, you know, like then it's a, you're selling your, some of your shares and you're getting three, $400 million that you can sort of, you know, use for other purposes. Like it's a lot of this investment stuff, right? Like say you're selling, you know, 2% of your team, whatever you can then take that 10, 20 million that you get out of it and then invest it in some hedge fund that you can turn that into $50 million. Right. So it's all these, Ross is a great example of like the poker chips are always moving around the table, right? He's, he knows how to, 
manipulate all the tax laws or whatever and find things. So it's like an opportunity to make money elsewhere. That that's why you're bringing people in. And it is like a huge, I'm sure like, show, you know, show offy thing of like, Hey, look, we got Serena Williams in the box. Look, you know, look at the, how excited we are for the Miami community that Gloria Stefan is involved in this or whatever. Like I, you know, in in my owner's case, we're going to get to like it was definitely because he needed the money. Uh, <laughs> but in the other owners' cases, I think it's because they just saw an opportunity to make more money elsewhere. Yeah, he's 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 playing like this is like his fantasy team, not just with like football, but like with money as well. Like he's just it's a game, right? So and and then so he buys the fifty percent from Hyzinga to start. Does that did that have to go through like the owners? Like, did he have to get approval on that? Because it's not oh, yeah. really like he's buying the the team. He's only buying yeah, half so, the team. But he's but he's buying majority. Stake, okay, so right? any so majority buying, owner has to be approved by the other owners. Managing partner, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think I think most of the transactions have to be approved one way or another. But it goes through a higher level of of vetting and due diligence. Um, because it's as soon as he buys them, yeah. it's an interesting case though of like. Like comparing it to the commanders recently of you, you have some, and what happened with the jets when Woody Johnson bought him is like, sometimes there's like a all out bidding war. We're going to sell the whole team to one other person. And it almost feels like this route was just like, Hey, I'm quietly going to buy half the team and it's not going to be a big deal. I, I mean, I think it was, it was a big deal that, that like Hyzenga sold him and all that. Um, and I'm not sure if there was an option at some point that, you know what? Hey, like if he does certain things, he gets the other 45% or whatever, but almost as soon as he buys him, like they start making noise about the stadium stuff and how the f- the future, you know, Mike D one of the executives for the dolphins says almost immediately, like according to ESPN, we want to invest more to refurbish the stadium. The future looks bleak at this point. And, and it just keeps kind of devolving from there. Ross says, Hey, you know what? I may move the team to Palm beach. Uh, Cause he's, you know, he's got a big house in Palm beach called the reef. Um, and then he, uh, if you your know, house, if your house has a name, you know that it's a big house. <laughs> uh, and, and they were, this know, was, they were still in the orange bowl. No, 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 this is no, no. They were at what Joe Robbie or whatever the hell they were calling it at the time pro player, you know, but it was a shit. It's a, it was a shithole. Yeah. That, yeah. Joe, I remember Joe Robbie. So, so the orange bowl's always just been a college stadium. And yeah. Yeah. And so he's trying to, I, I think the dolphins played at the, at the orange bowl way back when. But yeah. he's trying to get public financing for the stadium improvements, like four, $400 million. At the same time, Miami has all this other shit going on with the Marlins, the Heat. You know, like there's like six stadium, like the Panthers are trying to get a new hockey arena. There's all sorts of shit going on in South Florida. South Florida politics are a disaster anyway. So he's trying to play hardball. Ends up, you know, making noise about selling the team. It sounds like that didn't really go over well. They're like, hey, we're, we're going to have we're going to have an NFL franchise in South Florida. And he knows that it's more valuable there than anywhere that he could probably move it to ends up putting three or $400 million of his own money, financing it into hard rock stadium, which by all accounts, they've done a wonderful job with. Um, it seems like a pretty good fan, you know, other than the location being out in the middle of fucking nowhere, it seems like it's a pretty, like I've never been there before, but it seems like it's a pretty good fan experience and they've done some good things with what they've had to work with. It's not my favorite NFL stadium, but it's like I went to the Super Bowl there. Like it's a, you know, it, it looks like a weird sort of amusement park from the outside, but it, like inside, it's pretty nice. Yes. And they have the F1 race around it now. Do they have a development going? Yeah. So I think so. It's funny. He tried to buy F1, 
Okay. <laughs> he tried to team up with the Qataris to buy F1. And uh, so I'm assuming that's kind of like, that was back in 2015. So I'm assuming that kind of, they were like, hey, like Liberty Media was probably like, hey, we're not going to sell you F1, but we'll work with you on a, on a race. So Ross did the whole <laughs> did the whole thing with the fake yachts out in the parking lot <laughs> for God, the, the uh, for the thing, you know. Along the way too, like he he cast the only no vote on the Raiders moving to Vegas because he felt like they hadn't made best efforts to stay in Oakland. He also chirped Dean Spanos for kind of the same thing. Felt like he didn't make best efforts to stay in San Diego. So I'm sure some of that might be residual stuff of like hey you know what like fuck you guys like i tried to you know have like move my team you wouldn't let me why are you letting these guys i, I wouldn't disagree with them on that especially with the chargers yeah. i thought the chargers were like the chargers thing was chicken that shit. was so yeah. so lame you know something else business-wise uh he's in this rse ventures which uh is with this guy matt higgins are you familiar with this guy at all no all right so matt higgins he's from bayside Queens, Queens went to Queens College, okay, and then he, and then and then he put himself through night school at Fordham. He was an investigative reporter uh, for the Queens Tribune, won a couple of awards there. Becomes the youngest press secretary in in New York City history for Rudy Giuliani. This is during nine eleven, so he's the press secretary there. Then he becomes the COO eventually of the Lower Manhattan Development Corp, which did all the nine eleven post reconstruction. And then he goes to the Jets and he's the EVP of BizOps for the Jets. So he's kind of overseeing all their revenue operations. Then, then he leaves there in 2012 and uh, starts this RSE thing with Stephen Ross. Um, and they, they're deep into, like they backed Resi, the uh, reservations platform that, that, that American Express bought. Deep in with your boy Gary Vaynerchuk. He's a co-owner of Vayner Media. Oh God, that's a massive red flag. <laughs> you fucking hustle. What are you on TikTok? Why are you not using TikTok? He's on Shark Tank all the time. You know, so this is where the Momofuku investments, Bluestone Lane, that sort of thing. He helped build MetLife Stadium. He's deep into soccer promotion, uh, esports promotion, all, all that sort of stuff. So he sounds like a pretty fascinating guy. What right? a career. Goes from the beat writer on Bell Boulevard to uh, a, a titan of, of venture right? capital. That's wild. And he's like he's like in his like mid-40s, I think. Like he's doing all this like as he's in his 30s, like 20s and 30s. It's crazy. Um, so anyway, we're back back to the Dolphins. Um, tw- like 2009, they... Like they bring Richie Incognito into the fold, they miss the playoffs. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that. Uh, whole thing. They draft Monte Davis and Sean Smith, re-sign Ricky Williams. They drafted Brian Hartline. 2010, Parcell steps down, stays on as a consultant. They sign Brandon Marshall. Ross flies to San Francisco to interview fellow Michigan man and current Stanford coach Jim Harbaugh, while Tony Sperano is still employed. Then it leaks, and then he gives Sperano a two-year ex- extension. And, you know, Sperano had gone back-to-back seven and nine seasons at that point. Uh, 2011, Pennington's out for um, injuries. They draft Mike Pouncey. They flirt with Kyle Orton a little bit. They trade for Reggie Bush. They've got – they cut Channing Crowder, who, like, what a fucking lunatic he was. They start 0-7. 
Sperano pleads with officials during a game against the Broncos to review a touchdown or else, quote, I'm going to get fired. Please review this touchdown. <laughs> or, they were up 15 to nothing in the fourth, Please. deep into the fourth quarter, Please. and they lost 18 to 15. Sperano then puts his house up for sale two days after the game. They then win four of five games, but Sperano is still fired. Todd Bowles comes in as the interim. They finish six and ten. Uh, Jeff Ireland, the GM, starts coming under fire. Um, he came from the Cowboys. Bar- Parcells br- brought him in. Uh, Ireland's also the one who asked Des if his mother was a prostitute. That's right. <laughs> uh, fans start getting chippy. They're flying banners over the stadium, like fire Ireland, all this stuff. Uh, so in 2012, so basically Ross, Ross has been owner for like three or four years at this point. It kind of seems like he, he didn't really rock the boat, you know, like Parcells left after 2010, but his guys stay on. Ross doesn't really re- totally reset everything, right? So 2012, the Dolphins won- really, really want to hire Jeff Fisher, but they lose out to the Rams on that sweepstakes. Uh, so they nab Joe Philbin from the Packers. They Joe signed- Philbin. Oh, God. <laughs> Remember the hard knock season? Yes. So this was the hard knocks year. They signed David Garrard and draft Ryan Tannehill. 2013, they fortify the trenches a little bit, but a late year losing streak does them in. They go eight and eight miss the playoffs, then they fire Ireland, but they've still got Philbin. Then Dennis Hickey is hired from the Bucs as a GM. I got the sense that he sold the analytics stuff pretty hard to, to, to uh, Ross. Uh, he, so he lasts only two years. 2015, they, they drafted Devontae Parker, and then they bring in Mike Tannenbaum, Jets you know, another guy. hard knocks. Yeah, he was the hard knocks GM Jets there. Uh, he, I, I imagine he was probably undercutting Hickey. They signed Indomitian Sue to the largest contract in NFL history. Locked Tannehill up to a big extension. They begin the season one and three and fire Philbin. Dan Campbell then takes over. I love you guys, man. Dolphins were, they, like, Dolphins were a sexy pick to be a rising team that year. They finished six and 10. 2016. Adam Gase is hired as head coach. Oh, God. Wow, they, they have like a string of some bad hires. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> Chris, Chris Greer is hired as GM. He's still fucking there. He's in his seventh or eighth year there now. Wow. Uh, they draft Laramie Tunsil uh, after the whole gas mask bomb uh, <laughs> situation. <laughs> uh, they trade for Kiko Alonso, Byron Maxwell. They draft Xavier Howard. They go 10 and 6, losing the first round. Uh, 6 and 10 record in 2017. Bad draft. They draft Fitzpatrick, Gesicki, release Sue. They finish seven and nine after starting three and zero. Oh. Gase is fired. Gase then somehow goes to the to the Jets again. More Jets Dolphins crossover here. TC might be going down the leaderboard here. So 2019, <laughs> they bring, but but I th- I think this all adds up to like it's almost like he's too loyal to people, yeah. or he's or he, like he doesn't clean house all at the same time, right? Because 2019, they bring in Brian Flores. They do Ooh, a total rebuild. Uh, fun fact, Brian Flores' twin brother was my equipment manager at Columbia. Wow. Identical twin. Obviously, I mean, he was just the equipment manager, not a player. No, like, just the equi- equipment manager, Danny Flores. And his it was always like, yeah, my brother's coaching the NFL. And then like six years later, I'm like, holy shit, that's, that's my <laughs> equipment Brian manager. Flores. No, it's his brother. Yeah. It's wild. That's awesome. So yeah, so like I feel like in 2019 they're doing what they should be doing, right? They're they're tearing everything down, they're loading up on draft picks, all that. 
2020, they draft Tua. They whiffed on Austin Jackson and the corner from Auburn. Uh, but, you know, they finished 10 and 6. They got blown out in week 17 by the Bills, 56 to 26 to get eliminated from the playoffs, which is tough. And then 2021, they, they one and seven start, and then they win seven in a row. And then they get eliminated from the playoffs by Tannehill in week 17. And then they fire Flores due to alleged poor relationships with the front office and roster. And Greer is still still on board. Greer's kept. So it, so it, it kind of feels like he's been maybe overly loyal to Greer and, you know, got rid of Flores. There, there was all the alleged stuff about him wanting okay. to, you know, he was paying Flores or he – he had offered Flores 100K per loss to tank. Like, I, I think he he forced Flores to come onto his yacht to meet with meet Tom with Brady. Brady. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of stuff flying around there in 2019 as part. And this all comes out in the 2022 lawsuit, which, you know, ends up being the, uh, the NFL announces Dolphins lost 2023 first rounder and 2024 third rounder for tampering with Brady. And Sean Payton fined Ross $1.5 million, suspended him for three months. And um, yeah, so that's that's kind of, you know, that whole arc of things. It feels like to me that he very much like didn't, he's like learned on the job and learned how to like, based on his businesses, he seems like a pretty smart, you know, innovative dude who puts people, like puts smart people in positions and it seems like he's finally starting to do that with the Dolphins. Like they seem like they have a plan. They're sticking to it. The plan is cohesive, really outside the box hire with McDaniel. Um, you know, and they're they're like they're doing they're they're spending like he spends money. They're doing the right stuff. It seems like. So I don't know if I'm a Dolphins fan. I'm probably pretty pretty enthused. I didn't right? realize with, how old he was. He's 82. He is old. He just he's he's currently separated from his his second wife. I've always pictured him as a younger, I don't know. I, I, I actually never seen, I just looked him up. I never, never really laid eyes on the guy. Yeah. He's yeah. He's kind <laughs> of a, um, um, you know, he, he had some controversy in, uh, he hosted a big fundraiser for DT out in Southampton. Then, you know, soul cycle comes under fire for that. Kenny Stills says a bunch of stuff. He ships Kenny Stills out to uh, New Orleans, I think, or or Houston at that point. And, um, you know, he had done a bunch of stuff with uh, one of the foundations or one of the, the diversity kind of things that was set up in the wake of totally glossed over the whole Richie Incognito, Pouncey. Uh, what was that guy's name? Jonathan, Jonathan Martin. Jonathan Taylor or Jonathan the, Martin? Jonathan yeah. Martin. Jonathan Martin. Well, the bully. Yeah. yeah. Bullying. bullying thing like the, he set up a you know a whole thing to kind of combat that of like hey we're we're putting our money where our mouth is based on his mentor max fisher being deep into republican politics he he donated a bunch of money to mitt romney he is an investor in this ladder capital which is like a shadow bank that has a ton of debt uh out to dt it's financial holdings which is interesting. Uh, he's deep into this super PAC, Common Sense NYC. Neil, are you familiar with them at all? I'm not, no. <laughs> I got to do some research on that. Loves walking up the stairs at the Time Warner Center. Does that to stay stay fit uh, up to his penthouse apartment. Good and always take the stairs. Uh, TC, where do you think he, he 
like where does he fit within the like the league and like the owner power structure? I think he's kind of firmly in the middle, right? I don't I don't think he's he's necessarily a, a leader out front, but I also don't think he's like a shit stirrer. I think he's probably part of that block with, you know, I'm sure he's a guy, like a resource for the other guys to reach out to if they're doing real estate stuff or he's extremely well connected. He's, he's, you know, one of the most powerful guys in New York city. Um, he, you know, he runs, you know, he runs some pretty, pretty substantial stuff in a lot of different cities. So yeah, I would say he's probably middle of the pack to, you know, upper third. It's interesting, like when we're talking about Kraft, I feel like Kraft's sole goal was to be an NFL owner, right? It was like, this is, I'm going to make all this money and I'm going to buy the New England Patriots and I'm going to keep them here and I'm going to build them into like the best franchise in sports. And Jerry Jones, same thing. Dream was to just, I want to buy the Cowboys and that's what I'm going to do. And then the wealth from that purchase is from the real estate and just the whole ecosystem around owning an arena or a stadium and, and a sports team. Ross kind of falls into this category for me of like, I have so much other, this is a toy. This is a play thing. Yeah. I'm just going to, yeah, I'll take 50% of the dolphins, you know, from, from my buddy, Hyzinga. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll buy the other 45. I think it's a toy, but I think he takes it seriously in, in an ego way to where like, he doesn't want to be seen as the clueless owner who's using it as a hobby. Like he wants, he deeply wants them to be successful because he, because he, he's successful in everything else he does in business. But it's an interesting you know? like exercise to think about like are the owners where their not not their wealth is tied to the team but like it is their primary now it is their primary source like it is the primary piece of the holding company for craft right and like that becomes the primary focus versus I feel like a lot of owners we almost make two groups of like yeah I don't think the dolphins are his primary part of his holding company Right. And, and you, does that lead to, in my opinion, it, it, you know, it would lead to a worse owner. Like it, you wish that the ownership of the team was what they did, like with their, you know, that was their focus. I think you if could I probably a, if I was a divide team, that second group into two, two levels where like, it's totally hands off or this guy cares deeply, you know, about it. And you would put Ross in the cares deeply about it, but not his sole focus. Yeah. And you know, like, it's like, even on the DT stuff, it's like, yeah, you put out a statement. I've always been an active participant in, in the democratic process. While some prefer to sit on the outside of the process and criticize, I prefer to engage directly and support the things I deeply care about. I've known Donald Trump for 40 years. And while we agree on some issues, we strongly disagree on many others. And I've never been bashful about expressing my opinions. I started my business with nothing. And a reason for my engagement with our leaders is my deep concern creating jobs and growing our country's economy. He's a big, big bootstraps guy. All right. <laughs> Huge bootstraps guy. I have been and will continue to be an outspoken champion of racial equality, inclusion, diversity, public education, and environmental and sustainability. And I have and will continue to support leaders on both sides of the aisle to address these challenges. And of course, I'm a huge proponent of affordable housing. Yes. So, and so <laughs> getting back, tying a loop on this, the tax stuff. So he's given, <laughs> he's given like $200 million to Michigan in his initial thing. So the business school is named after him, Stephen Ross school of business. And then I think he split, he split it into two things, hundred million dollars to the, to the business school, hundred million dollars to the athletics department. So I think he's like the mega booster calls the shots, pays for Harbaugh's contract, all that shit. 
the interesting thing is he is currently he and uh two other you know his his longtime accountant and another guy uh another business associate are currently under criminal investigation for the tax deduction that they tried to take for, for him for uh this whole Michigan donation right and, and and I think he's probably getting all sorts of you know real estate you know he, he's probably playing like like using the NFL team to get all sorts of other exceptions and exemptions tax wise where like there was a big bonus or a big uh tax ex, uh, loophole that guys could could use up until like the last couple of years uh called bonus depreciation which they can basically write off the entire cost of like buying equipment and tangible assets in one year versus you're know, doing it incrementally. So the, I think a lot of them were using that as kind of a get out of jail free card on, on some of the stuff. But uh, there's a big, big article in the Detroit free press, uh, August, 2017 about uh, Ross's controversial 10 to one tax deduction, providing a rare look inside the world of the Uber rich. Basically the IRS found that, the University of Michigan agreed to accept Ross's gift without obtaining an appraisal of it. UM then agreed to hold Ross's remainder interest gift for two years. They sold the interest to a mysterious buyer uh, who turned out to be his lawyer and accountant. <laughs> so he bought his, <laughs> <laughs> bought his own interest. Uh, they, they resold the gift for less than one third of the appraised value. In return, the partnership claimed a giant charitable deduction of $33 million. The IRS called bullshit, flagged it, said this is a tax avoidance scheme lacking an economic substance to the benefit of Mr. Ross and his associates at related companies. Huh. So uh, well. it's been disallowed since, I guess. But uh, yeah, and they've put, they, the judge imposed maximum civil penalties for gross valuation misstatement. All that's to say... Kind of a complicated dude. He seems like he's, uh, you know, he's 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 a mover and a shaker. The one thing I will add uh, from my ESPN days during that uh, Flores stuff, when the tanking allegations came out, uh, me and a bunch of other reporters called literally every single person on the roster of that uh, <laughs> Miami team and asked them to talk about uh, whether they felt that the team was tanking. And I'm not kidding, not a single one of them would talk. Like it was like. Omerta of silence. So it's sort of <laughs> fascinating. Who knows what that means? Could mean nothing. Could mean, you know, that they felt that something was, you know, not on the up and up there, but uh, it was clearly like they wanted that era of their lives to go away. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy to read like some of the stuff that these guys, like the, this Georgetown law professor said, I think this transaction was grossly abusive. Uh, another guy at, uh, let's see here. Another guy at, uh, University of Florida law school said, I don't understand why someone is not going to jail for this <laughs> quote. As so. Neil said, just because it's legal doesn't make it right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very legal, yeah, so very I, not cool. Very not cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so kind of a, you know, you got to take the, got to take the bad with the good, I guess he's, he's donating a ton of money to his alma mater, but you know, he's also getting immense personal benefit out of it. All right. You want to, Thank our next sponsor, TC. I would love to thank our next sponsor, which is ServPro. Uh, like it never even happened, guys. Like that charitable donation never even happened. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? The charitable donation did happen, but it was like the deduction never even happened, except for the 
except for the massive civil penalty he had to pay. Um, which, you know, if you guys get into a mess like that, just call surf pro, right? If you got to clean up something, if you, you know, any fire water, uh, I'm here in Florida, we've got all sorts of hurricanes, uh, rolling through, you know, hurricane season starting next, you know, two to three months here. Yeah. So surf pro has got 50 years of experience helping people recover from all sorts of disasters. They're here to help 24 seven. Just call 1-800-SURF-PRO. They specialize in cleaning, restoration due to floods, storms, fires, mold, and more. They're faster than any size disaster with over 2,000 locations nationwide. And they're the number one brand in cleanup and restoration. Like it never even happened. We've been, uh, yeah, we've, we've had some fun with this sponsorship. It's been cool over the last, last, last couple of months. So uh, visit surfpro.com or call 1-800-SURF-PRO today. Uh, again, that's S E R V P R O dot com. Yeah, it's it's cool too. I think there's a uh, Solly's actually had to use them twice, which is wild. It's kind of I one of those things I you file. Used them up here with my pipe burst. That was tough. still still trying to fix that stuff in this building. Any it, uh, any resolution for you on that? No, like, are you guys still, liable for that, or or how's that work? No, no, it's been nothing but silence. Jim's still busted in the basement. I don't know what the deal is. We're not getting a lot of uh Did you get your floors fixed? Yeah, yeah. My apartment's all fixed up. Everything that was that was they, they fixed all the residential units, but then the common areas are still, you know, they're just in a holding pattern for some reason. So well, it's still it what happened. Your, what your it, it, what your tenants' rights are, Neil. We don't have to look into that. I know, and then you know you they have, said like you should reach out to Stephen Ross. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's the thing. They said like, oh yeah, there'll be some maybe some rent abatement for not being able to use the you know building amenities, but then you reach out and ask about it, and it's like nothing. So I don't know. Well, there's some uh, now that I have the dog. You know, I I I've met a bunch more people in the building. A couple of there's a couple of lawyers in the building. They're like, oh yeah, we're all over them. I'm like, okay, then I'll. <laughs> I'll sit back for now and just keep in touch with you. It's like the lawyers of the refuge. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, I, I, we've got some, uh, some allies among the tenants. Love it. Uh, KVV. Yes. Well, if there's the ever, event. if there's ever an owner that needed serve pro, uh, it was, <laughs> it was Daniel Snyder. We wanted to make sure that we got Snyder in before the wire here uh, because it looks as though the commanders are moving on. Finally, uh, the celebrations in D.C., I could almost hear them from my house uh, when it looked like Josh Harris's bid to buy the commanders was accepted. Uh, it's still not official yet. There's a lot of, as we alluded to earlier, a lot of uh, kind of noise surrounding the bid, some fake uh, people. Brian Davis, the former Duke basketball player, claims he has a higher bid. But <laughs> almost certainly uh, the the Josh Harris uh, group, which he owns the 76ers, will get accepted, uh, which means that the long-suffering Commanders fans, uh, previously Redskins fans, will be relieved of the reign of terror of Dan Snyder. Dan Snyder will likely go down is one of the worst owners in the history of American sports. Maybe one uh, of the worst people. Possibly one of the worst people, uh, allegedly. allegedly. Hard to say, you know, that, I mean, certainly there's, you know, people who've been, you know, arrested for very serious crimes for, you know, <laughs> serial killers and such. They would they would rank well ahead of Dan Snyder probably. But which, speak, uh, Speaking of which, Robert Kraft, we didn't get into any of the, the Arenthal stuff. Uh, you know, Aaron Hernandez. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, was... we didn't. That's a miss by me. I probably <laughs> took it easy on some of that stuff. 
It's with some of these things with Snyder, there's so much to cover that uh, I'm probably not going to get into the football stuff too much because yeah. the, the football thing could be its own shit show podcast. Uh, really, this is just kind of about how Dan uh, be, became the owner of the Washington franchise and then how he slowly over time tanked it to the point where we now have congressional investigations, multiple congressional investigations, federal investigations, uh, allegations right and left. Uh, but let's start, let's go back to the, let's first let's set the bar. Dan Snyder's net worth is, it's around 4.9 billion. A lot of that is tied up into the franchise. Um, but there are other sort of things that allowed him obviously to acquire the money to get the franchise. He is on the Forbes list around 211 to two, like 211, 215 in terms of, uh, you know, most uh, wealthy individuals in the United States. Um, a lot of people are sort of under the misapprehension that Dan Snyder grew up as a sort of spoiled rich kid. Very much not the truth. Dan Snyder is very much a, a bootstraps uh, kid. He was born in Montgomery County here in Maryland, and his parents uh, had very little money. In fact, one of the anecdotes that I dug up, uh, a couple of these things I'll, I'll cite here. Um, there was a Washingtonian article by Harry Jaff that contained a lot of stuff. There's a Michael Leahy piece in the Washington Post that had a lot of great uh, bio information. And Dave McKenna, who wrote for the City Paper and, and now Defector, did a lot of the stuff that's going to come at the end. But uh, Snyder did not even have a television as a child. He and his father used to walk down the street to the TV store to watch Redskins games because they were not wealthy enough to buy a uh, television. How did he go to Bullis? So he went to Bullis, like, which is like a private, expensive High school. I had an ex-girlfriend on the bus. We'll get there. His dad was actually a freelance journalist who wrote for the National Geographic, which is sort of interesting <laughs> considering how many feuds uh, Snyder had with the media over the years. I don't think any owner has ever hated the media as much as Dan Snyder. Uh, they lived in an apartment in Silver Springs, kind of across the street from a Sears department store. When Snyder was 12, his dad took a book assignment in England, and the whole family moved there. And that's where he went to a private school and had to wear a tie every day. Uh, he told an anecdote once about the private school saying that uh, one of his teachers took a cane to his knuckles when he didn't turn in his homework. Uh, so corporal punishment was a, a little part of uh, his England experience. After he came home from England, uh, the Senators moved back to the States, but they moved to Queens uh, because his uncle Charlie had died. And uh, so they, the family kind of needed help. And so they moved to Queens, which Snyder said made Silver Springs look like a country club. Uh, he described like going, uh, walking to get ice cream in Queens and saying it, it toughened him up because it was like a war zone, essentially. He was hanging out with Cameron Young in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> the, the hard streets of NYC with, in the Wu-Tang Clan, I'm sure. So he moved back to Maryland into the, what was called the Pavilion Apartments in Congressional Plaza. He ended up going to Woodward High School, which is a high school that no longer exists. And his friends there say he was kind of uh, one of the outcasts and nerds. Uh, the people in school, like they dubbed him the little English kid uh, and he <laughs> did not have a ton of friends. Uh, there's this great scene in the Michael Leahy piece in the Post um, where he says, um, I was not one of those kids into the social scene. Uh, and he's sitting in an AIDS office where he's, so he's telling me a story. I was, uh, and then he shouted at a pack of AIDS, hey, what do they call that big kid at the prom? And someone yells out, the homecoming king. One of them pipes up. He goes, no, 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 the prom king, right? That's what they call it, right? And he looks around, silence. He would like an answer. He didn't go to the prom. He didn't go to anything. These guys probably went to everything. Right, he persists. His underlings nod, and he rushes on. Anyway, I wasn't the prom king. I wasn't voted most likely to succeed either. I wasn't voted most likely to anything. I was probably would have liked to have been, you know, because, like, who wouldn't? 
<laughs> make no mistake, he's the king now. <laughs> when people from his old high school try to make contact, he doesn't remember them and doesn't believe they could possibly remember him. When he hired a guy, David Cope, who he'd gone to high school with, he didn't realize that until Cope uh, informed him during the interview that he'd been his classmate. Cope had been one of the popular kids, a jock, and been in all the right cliques and dated all the beautiful women. Well, Snyder said, let's not pretend like we knew each other. <laughs> Pretty sick. I mean, this sums up Schneider. Like, I was yes. trying to think. He's just perpetually been not cool, and he's been upset about it. And it seems like that's that was his MO as the, as the owner, too, of just like, dude, what, like, it's like he's he lacks lacks the coolness and then gets mad at everybody else for it. That is basically the thesis statement, I think, of Dan Snyder's entire tenure. Entire, <laughs> the thing that has driven him his entire life is that he's just, like, he is pretty smart, but he's, like, obsessed with, like, wanting to be liked, and yet he cannot do the things that would make him liked by literally anyone outside of people who he's paying to like him. So so, so I totally whiffed on the Bullis thing, too. He didn't go to Bullis. Does his kid go to Bullis or something? Uh, is Bullis the school where Dwayne Haskins went to? Yes. Because, so that's yeah. what comes up later. He essentially okay. d- drafts Dwayne Haskins because <laughs> his kid wanted to hang out with Dwayne Haskins, <laughs> who he had gone to school with. So uh, in this post piece, it said it all, he always had a zest for competition and an eye toward acquisitions. In high school, when introduced to Tony Roberts, who would soon become his best friend, Snyder sized up a girl Roberts was dating and, as Roberts remembered, started hitting on her. He was just a very determined guy. He said, I have an idea what's out there for me. I'm going to be a great businessman. He said it all the time. He was serious beyond his years, especially about two things, money and the Redskins. Autumn Sundays were filled with him parked in a blanket that his mother arranged in front of the TV instead of an indoor picnic. The boy silently eating his chili while staring at the television, his concentration absolute. <laughs> One time when Roberts recalls they were watching the Redskins, he was jumping around after a big play, and Snyder Yard started yelling at him, Can you shut up so I can watch this? I need to see this. <laughs> I was like, I, I took the jumping around personally, like I had a stake in the game. He cared if the team lost, but it didn't ruin my week, says his friend. For Dan, every loss was like a nightmare, like a depression. Uh, Dan was not particularly athletic as a kid. There's no record of him really playing sports. He did like throwing the football around uh, and was a big Skins fan, but he was embarrassed to tell his friends that he couldn't hang on weekends because he had to work. I liked work, Snyder said. I still do. His first job at 14 was at uh, B. Dalton Books. Do you guys remember B. Yeah. Dalton Books? Yeah, it was sort of the precursor to like Barnes Noble, but it was like very much uh, featured in malls. So he had a job in the Flint Mall and he basically would sit and read books about business all the time. That was kind of why he loved that job was he was just obsessed about how to start a business. So he started out at Montgomery, Montgomery Community College uh, and eventually he ended up at the University of Maryland. His first business idea was a travel business that he started out of his bedroom of his parents' apartment selling spring break trips to kids. Uh, he would basically like somehow it's very unclear. The details are murky, but lease like private jets where he would fly kids down to beaches in like Florida and stuff from the area. So I'm assuming like Georgetown prep kids or Landon kids or some of the sort of exclusive high end kids that he would kind of arrange these like shitty trips and somehow get a private plane. Dude, that's to- exact. That's almost exactly the, how David Nealman, the, the jet blue founder started his thing. He was like chartering, chartering planes from salt lake i think to um or he was like selling tickets but he started like chartering planes from salt lake to uh hawaii for like mormons to like go on vacation and um 
Yeah, there's like a great how I've built this uh, pod on it. Nice. Sorry, apparently, he's, apparently there was a market there for in that era for yeah. kids. Kids wanted to slip out on vacation. Uh, his next big venture was starting a magazine titled Campus USA, uh, aimed at college kids. And uh, his his dad secretly agreed to join the masthead under a pseudonym and write for the magazine to sort of give it some <laughs> credibility and edit. While Dan like wrote ads and stuff. So like this uh, this magazine that was targeted targeted towards college kids had uh, Jerry Snyder writing like the articles, like what what's hip for college kids and stuff. Uh, Snyder really wanted the magazine to work, so he decided to pitch uh, Mort Zuckerberg, Zuckerman on the idea. Any of you, either of you know who Mort Zuckerman is? No. Yeah. Mortimer, right? Yeah. So he's the publisher and editor of US News and World Report, which does the infamous college uh, rankings. Also, I think owns the New York Daily News. He kept calling and pitching and hustling until Zuckerman finally exasperated and got on a line. Snyder lied about his age, uh, saying he was 25 when he was really 23, <laughs> kind of like how people used to lie to go off to war. You know, they, they volunteer. <laughs> this is Snyder's equivalent of that. Uh, eventually, he got Zuck to loan him uh, $3 million bucks, But within a few years, he'd lost all of it because the magazine couldn't generate any revenue. Sounds like some media startups that we might know. <laughs> Zuckerman was furious, but this was actually going to turn out to a good deal for him in the long run, which we'll get to. Uh, Snyder's next idea that he was going to start the business on was advertising stuff on wallboards, uh, like in doctor's offices and bus stops. And as Neil can attest, the subway, his main focus was to distribute product samples in colleges and doctor's offices. So he and his sister took out a $35,000, uh, sort of loan on seven different credit cards. And that's how Snyder got the sort of uh, juice to start up this wallboard business. Um, so when like new moms would take home their kids from the hospital, they would get like a little sample kit of creamers and diapers and all of it by provided by Snyder's company. So he was very much in the always be commercing uh, kind of uh, thing. It's funny, KVV, Mort Zuckerman, head of like uh, Boss Properties, which big, big real estate company. Uh, I think Zuckerman owned like the Atlantic for a while and Fast Company and a couple other things. But like Zuckerman outbid DT to redevelop the New York Coliseum, which was the whole thing at Columbus Circle, they end up not proceeding with the development and Stephen Ross comes in and develops it into Time Warner Center. So there's all these like concentric circles, you know? I think we're going to find out through this series that like, there's only like, you know, a hundred people in the United <laughs> States who pull all the strings and like half of them own like somehow professional sports teams because they're just like the big baubles that they wave around and, uh, you know, move their money through. Uh, the Washingtonian reporter who wrote about uh, <clears throat> Snyder asked him when he first started to feel rich. He said in 1991 was when he bought his first jet. He was 26 years old. One guy who helped finance, finance one of Snyder's first business described him as having PSD syndrome. He was poor, smart, and desperate to be rich. <laughs> so so the, the samples business must have done well. He did pretty well, but it wasn't really what exploded for him. Uh, so this kind of gave him enough revenue to sort of invest in the next thing, which was the telemarketing business. Uh, oh and it was focused Jesus. specifically on the on the immigrant community. Jesus. His, his revenues uh, started out like $2.1 million and then rose to $9 million within two years. He was eventually uh, sanctioned and fined by the communi Federal Communications for essentially what's called slamming, which is... Uh, switching people's telephone contracts to another company without their consent. So all of a sudden, like you'd sign up for Verizon and then all of a sudden you'd get a bill from T-Mobile. And it was because Snyder's company would basically like jam you up and switch you over and sell off 
your phone contract. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. He moved on to start, this was part of like part of Snyder Communications, which is kind of the larger thing that he did. He once described that he, he liked to brag that he'd never been to court. He said, I'm a goody two shoes. Business <laughs> ethics are important to me, <laughs> which will not prove to be yeah, true. Anybody in the long that run. says that business ethics are important to me as a statement is that is a massive red flag. It's like, like Eric a, from Billy yeah. Madison. <laughs> I choose business ethics. <laughs> Uh, in 1996, Snyder Communications went public, and a bunch of people got rich, including Snyder, obviously, but his family, who had sort of had shares in the company. Uh, to repay Zuckerman, he gave him shares in Snyder Communication, which in uh, 2003 were worth $500 million. So Zuckerman kind of did pretty well in that sort of uh, loan to to Danny Boy in the early. His parents made $60 million in the deal, and they were able to buy their first house. So it wasn't until, like... 1996, that Dan's parents stopped living in an apartment, essentially. Uh, at the time, he became the youngest CEO ever listed on the New York Stock Exchange. He was 32 years old. Uh, Snyder Communications continued to look for creative ways to make money, including exploiting diabetics and cancer patients. Uh, in an interview with a, a program called <laughs> CEO Exchange, Snyder told host Jeff Greenfeld that his business depended on coming up with $5 million niches that he could sell goods and services to. Asked for examples of that methodology, Snyder said, we're looking at trend lines. We saw the aging baby boomer demographics were coming on strong. That meant there's gonna be a lot more diabetic patients and a lot more cancer patients. How can we capture those market segments? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, in 1999, uh, one well, of Snyder's and, and this business- is still telemarketing then. So basically, calling up diabetics and saying like, "Hey, I got some. I got something you might be interested in, like compression socks." Correct, and there was sort of some buying up some sort of smaller um, local like TV stuff and radio stations and things like that. So basically, just trying to get the the media into the media business in a lot of ways. Uh, in 1999, one of Snyder's business execs told him, "Hey, did you see the Redskins are for sale?" Because uh, owner Jack Kent Cook had died the year before. Snyder said he want, decided he wanted in on the bidding. There's a great anecdote in the post piece where is an anecdote of as a kid, he would sit in the stands at, at Redskins games and look longingly at the owner's box and see like Jack Kent Cook in there and wonder what was going on there, what it would be like to sort of be a head of state and have people come and sort of kiss the ring in there. And so that's what he wanted for himself. Uh, he decided he wanted in on the bidding, even though he didn't have anywhere close to the 800 million that people suspected the team would sell for. Uh, so in, initially he thought he would just sort of get in on the bid with some um, partners uh, and the bleeding partners that everyone thought might get the bid were some people that we're familiar with in the golf business, the Milsteins, Howard Milstein and his brother. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As they, when they, before they were entangled with Jack Nicklaus, uh, they were interested in buying the Washington franchise. God. Uh, so Snyder figured he could come up with a hundred million, but the uh, NFL didn't really like the Milsteins as um, a potential owners. And so they sort of blew, blew them off. And when that happened, Snyder decided to move forward on his own sort of scrambled together and put up as much money as he possibly, basically like leveraged himself as much as he possibly could. He financed a huge portion of the purchase. You know, the rules were still in place there that you had to put up, uh, you know, 30% on your own, but he got that by basically putting up like 120 million of his own. And then his family kind of put up 90 million. And then he got another 90 million from Zuckerman and this guy, Fran Drasher, uh, who had sort of backed some of his early enterprises. It was kind of a surprise that he ended up winning the um, bid, uh, just because he managed to sort of charm all the owners. Like Kraft was one of the people who he was very um, 
good at sort of charming that that kind of helped him win the room and stuff. Uh, and he actually won. He got voted yes, thirty-one to zero. Wow. Uh, he did not. He did not endear himself to the media right away. <clears throat> when he accepted the winning bid, he came out of the meeting and blew right by reporters who had been waiting in the hotel lobby for like six hours for comment. Uh, it's something that he later called to apologize to them, but it was sort of seen as his first blunder. Didn't Kraft have like an outrageous quote at some point too of like, like, oh, like, like I have no doubt that this guy's going to be one of the best owners in the league. You have nothing to worry about here. <laughs> I didn't catch that, but that sounds very much like uh, something that Bob Kraft like, would say. Like nobody cares more about winning than yes. this guy. So along the same lines as my, you know, thinking that Kraft was rich because of Kraft Foods, I always thought Dan Schneider was rich because he owned Six Flags. Is that was that is that just not not part so, of this? It, it is part of it, and we'll get to that. Okay. He didn't really – what Snyder did, and I'll tell you in a second, is he, he owned 12% of Six Flags and basically muscled his way into being the sort of president uh, and board. He, he led a shareholders uprising, and then he proceeded to bankrupt Six Flags. Yeah, yeah, that's what I always <laughs> remember. It's like, yeah. Snyder Communications is where he made his, the majority okay. of his money. So was the stadium part of like part of the – like was FedEx Field built at this point? That is a good question that I I think I missed in the research. They were playing in RFK for I'm pretty sure that he uh, got the stadium built. But the stadium, what's interesting about the stadium is it was immediately immediately seen as like a lemon. As like literally like within a year or two of opening, it was like this place is a dump. Like they the did this really uh, wrong. But uh, it I looks do know like let's see here. It looks like it was built in sorry, Jack Kent Cook in '94. Sought to build a new stadium. It opened in '97, so 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 he did it. Like he kind of got the the wheels turning on it and did it, and then he died, kind of right before I think it opened. I do know that the uh, the Redskins at one point were sort of using because you know RFK Stadium was where they played for years. <clears throat> they were using like one of the upper decks to sort of honor RFK, but it was like they were gouging the shit out of people on prizes, and so the the Kennedy family asked for their name to be removed from the thing because they felt it was really gauche. <laughs> Anyway, so Snyder, um, he shows up uh, with the, the Redskins and he immediately fires 25 people from the organization saying it had clearly been underperforming. And he called the Jack Kent Cook era a rudderless boat bobbing in the ocean, even though like they had won three Super Bowls uh, under Jack Kent Cook. So he started showing up to practice. This will be sort of a, a theme throughout uh, Dan Snyder's tenure is that he... People were always wondering if he was trying to get the plays called, uh, if he was you know wanting to sort of input with the coaches. Uh, he was told that in like one of his early press conferences that uh, some assistant coaches were nervous about their futures. And he said, they should be. A Redskin is only satisfied with victory. And there's this great anecdote where in the press conference, he says that and he turns to one of his stooges and he says, that's a good line, isn't it? You should write that down. <laughs> um, asked what, when the Redskins won their uh, first game, so that the media asked him what the first victory meant to him, he paused as if sighing, as if he was being probed too deeply. We all had a good day. We came prepared, and that includes me. <laughs> God, he sounds like the, the guy that how to how to be a master of the like master of the universe for dummies. Like he just read like back to your initial point about him starting at a bookstore. It's like I I could just I can just read to be this will this I'll show them I'll become cool just by. I'll just read all the books on it. Neil, if he was if he was growing up these days, he'd, he would he would have been deep into the Vayner media, the Vaynerchuk stuff. For sure. He'd be doing drop shipping stuff, you know, making watches and 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 TikTok selling yoga mats on Amazon. Yeah. Yes. So one thing you need to understand about Snyder, he's a big belt buckle guy. 
Uh, <laughs> this this dates back to when he was a kid. Uh, as a boy, he sported a cheap metal belt buckle imprinted with a portrait of an Indian. He would wear this when he watched Redskins games. It was a trinket to Daniel Snyder, the Post said, in the way that Rosebud was just a sled to Charles Foster Kane. Uh, his life has since been distanced from those memories of growing up poor, but he has never forgotten his old belt buckle. It's tucked away in his chest in Bethesda with his wife, where his wife and daughters live. His newest Redskins belt buckle is, says more than anything about the psychic distance he's traveled. A couple weeks ago, he sat flying off to an exhibition game when one of his friends popped into the room and gestured at his shiny belt buckle engraved with the Redskins logo. The reporter asked if the belt buckle was a replica of Snyder's boyhood beloved possession. Are you kidding? He exclaimed, clicking his tongue, tugging on his belt and hoisting his pants to show off his newest buckle. This is from New York, Snyder said. A jeweler did this, Snyder said. This is silver. (laughs) These shoes are Italian. They're worth more than your life. One of the things that kind of comes up throughout uh, Snyder's sort of tenure is how much he does not uh, like sort of camaraderie. Uh, he says, there are a thousand people. <laughs> there are a thousand people who've worked with me who think I'm an asshole. And that's just the way it is. He said to have fired an executive who called him Dan. And when a reporter asked him about it, I said, I don't think I, I don't think I know who you're talking about. Did I fire that person? I says, oh, excuse me. He didn't fire him, but he rebuked him. He basically, uh, you know, punished him. Said, told no, they didn't fire, that individual still works for the team. Snyder frowns in puzzlement, denying that he insists on the unreasonable deference from employees, then putting his finger on what he views as the preferable business relationship. I'm not looking for them to be my buddy, he says. This is a serious mission. I'm a serious camper. Look, I've had a few experiences with Redskin people where they think I'm not serious because I'm young, but I'm absolutely demanding. You bet. (laughs) I'm a serious camper. Uh, so there's so much madness sort of in the Snyder's reign with the football team that I really kind of wanted to focus just on some of the kind of outside stuff because the football stuff is, is a little bit absurd. Uh, for years and years, Snyder feuded with the Washington post, uh, basically like hiring people to post on message boards, like nasty things about (laughs) post reporters who were allegedly, of course, uh, he, some of this started with, um, Snyder, his big thing is like trying to maximize the revenue for the Redskins all throughout the thing. He was one of the first people to charge fans to attend training camp. You know, it didn't, they would show up and not only would they be charged like $25 to park, but then they'd be charged admission to training camp, which was basically like free all around like the NFL. Uh, so he, he got really upset with the post back in 2005 when the post basically as a, Decision decided it would not renew their the big package of tickets that they'd held since the uh, the 1950s. And Snyder threw a tantrum and said basically that they that they had sort of said they weren't going to renew them because the post reporters were scalping them anyway, and that they had sort of they had tracked the tickets of where they were going. And like publisher Don Graham, one of his tickets showed up with like a stadium scalper like in the top row of something, and so Graham had to write like a, a handwritten note. Uh, the post had said that they gave them to like the lower level employees, like the newspaper delivery people as a reward, but they were just going to remove this from any of the equation. It, this started like a long running feud, uh, with the post that would continue for essentially two decades. He hasn't given her any kind of interview to the post in, I think like 15, 20 years. Uh, so Neil, what we were talking about, um, he started a private equity firm called red zone capital that sort of was used to then, you know, buy up radio stations to broadcast, um, the Redskins games and then pounced on some of the Six Flags stock, which was at the time the nation's largest theme park operator. 
he went on a crusade then to persuade the corporation's board to give him control without having to buy the company. Well, Six Flags turned into a total shit show under him. In a very succession-like move, he ousted the uh, current chairman and appointed himself the head of the board, saying investors were better off hiding their assets under mattresses than having it invested in Six Flags under the current ownership which turned out to be an apt metaphor when Snyder started selling uh, Six Flag themed mattresses, yes, actual mattresses out of the theme park that you could buy after your family uh, went to Six Flags. Snyder uh, sounds like WOM scams. Yeah, he much does. So he, uh, he trotted out a, a racist ad campaign for Six Flags where they had a casting call for an Asian actor who was instructed to, quote, act like Charlie Chan and scream out the words, more flags, more fun, in a cartoonish Asian accent. Uh, this only lasted for a little while before uh, various, like, uh, anti-defamation groups sort of called it out and uh, canceled it. Uh, he oversaw the launch of a program at Six Flags called Roller Coaster Cuts, which featured high-end haircuts for kids at the theme park. Uh, TC, how much do you pay for one of Freddie's haircuts? Honestly, <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe... Okay. $20, well, these haircuts at, at, uh, at roller coaster cuts were $50 for kids, um, which he actually tried to turn it into a chain, uh, launching brick and mortar stores in Hartford and King of Prussia, but they quickly died out because no one went to them. Uh, Bill Gates came up earlier in one of the things here. Uh, Bill Gates resurfaces here. Bill Gates was actually one of the big stockholders in Six Flags. He owned like $122 million of stock in Six Flags. Uh, which he was then basically like selling off slowly to, you know, finance his um, malaria project, which is, you know, save people in Africa from dying of malaria. And by the end of St uh, Snyder's reign of error, Bill Gates' stock was worth nothing, essentially pennies. And so there's all these like human rights groups that were sort of critical of Snyder basically saying like, literally like Snyder's bullshit actually probably cost people lives because Bill Gates didn't have that money to then you know, put towards malaria projects. Snyder, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised Snyder didn't get into the malaria game on the other side of things, you know, yeah. looking at that as an emerging market to, <laughs> to you know, police people it, it, and stuff. There seems to be a theme with Snyder through his business stuff and then as Redskins owner, he, and something we talk about with NLU, like he, at every point he treats the customer or the fan like they're stupid. Like, yes. like a mark, like it's always yes. gouging. It's always like, you know what? I could probably get, I could probably ring the towel for a little bit more. And that is just like, he can't help himself. And that has led to probably the majority of his issues. Here is a great example of that, Neil. Uh, you remember Cletus, the robot, the thing would be on the, the uh, Fox broadcast, yeah. jump around, whatever. So uh, he sold a, a a copy of Cletus, the robot from the Redskins site for 30 bucks. You could buy the same robot for $23 on the Fox website. So it's like little things like that, uh, basically. Um, to and, and that has such an impact on goodwill and like the benefit of the doubt. It's like that he's like incapable of understanding. It's like, I don't understand why everybody hates me. It's like, dude, this is a perfect example. It's like a thousand little cuts like this bullshit leads to you being like the most hated man in football. Correct. Uh, I would like to read a little bit more of those thousand <laughs> cuts. So one of the things, Neil, uh, he used the sort of equity of Six Flags to then buy Dick Clark Productions, which, you know, does the... Uh, <laughs> not only yeah, yeah. He's, he's buying the tackiest shit it's the worst it's like oh yeah like, it's like god 
Dang, that's so funny. I could see him owning like Chuck E. Cheese or Dave and Buster's no. or something like that. Uh, well, the, he also owned Johnny Rockets, the, oh the 50s <laughs> themed hamburger franchise. That that was one of the things that he used to acquire uh, with this. So some other sort of ticky-tack things that he did uh, to try to squeeze a dollar. It turned out in the 2006 season, it turned out that he was selling um, peanuts in the stadium from bank bankrupt airlines. <laughs> Vendors were offering shelled nuts in royal blue and white five-ounce bags adorned with the Independence Air logo. Uh, the problem was the airline had gone under a year earlier. A supplier told the Washington City paper it had stopped shipping the airline nuts before Independence Air went out of business. Uh, and a spokesman for the Peanut Council told the city paper to prevent rancidity, the recommended shelf life of a foil out-of-shelf bag was about three months. Jesus. <laughs> It was and it's like in his mind. Well, it's just too good of a deal to pass up. Like, yeah, we can get we can get these peanuts on the cheap, man. The Redskins at one point got sanctioned uh, by the health department for uh, selling beer in bathrooms, uh, which <laughs> fans had been <laughs> alleging best. that they were they were hawking uh, beer inside the bathrooms, and the the Redskins denied it. But then it was captured on a YouTube video that surfaced in two thousand and nine. Uh, the health department said that. It was disgusting because, like, E. coli sort of floating in the air could, like, contaminate uh, things in the beer. Some One of Snyder's cronies was caught uh, using a fake name, making anti-media rants on the on fan message boards. Uh, one other one of uh, Snyder's PR chief registered a name on sportsjournalist.com uh, and, and was trashing the Washington Post. And under the name Andy Man, which was pig Latin for Danny M., Snyder's first name and middle initial, uh, it disappeared as soon as the city paper called it out. Uh, when Lavernius Coles was, uh, Snyder wanted to trade him for Santana Moss, uh, with the jets and Coles, weird trade, by yeah. like, Coles said he wouldn't, uh, you know, approve the trade, uh, unless he got a contract extension, like a, he, his contract agreed to like a $5 million bonus and Snyder wouldn't do it. And so Snyder sent him a flat screen television to his house and said, you're better off watching the games here because you won't be playing with, uh, playing until you agree to the trade. Uh, Snyder sued a grandmother, a 73-year-old grandmother, and a five-decade season ticket holder. This isn't Snyder personally. I guess it's the Redskins sued her uh, in 2009 because she couldn't afford to keep up payments on a 10-year, $50,000 uh, uh, contract that she'd signed. She was one of like 200 uh, people who were the Redskins sued because they sort of couldn't keep up with their uh, ticket things. And eventually Snyder, Snyder decided to waive her fee, even though he won in court that said that she had to pay <laughs> Uh, one of the big reasons that he got in sort of a, a spat with the post, uh, sort of amplified it is, uh, he was sued by his former nanny, uh, who told the Montgomery County court that, um, she was being shortchanged and asked for, when asked for proper, uh, compensation, Snyder screamed at her, I pay you more than I pay my Redskins people. I can't afford to pay you like this. Uh, it turned out she was making $44,000 a year. Okay, when Snyder was named to the uh, the NFL's Digital Media Committee, everyone thought it was really bizarre because um, he had refused. He was the last team, basically, in the NFL that refused to install high-def video screens and for replays. So for years, fans mocked the video screens in FedEx fields as mini-trons and light brights. Uh, a Snyder spokesman said that the team couldn't give them what they wanted with the high-def screens because the stadium was wired for analog and therefore couldn't accommodate digital screens. But in 2009, Paul McCartney and U2 both played concerts at the stadium and brought their own high-def screams that somehow worked when plugged in. As of now, FedEx Field does finally have its own high-def system. 
during all of this, is he making money still, like on all of his he businesses? He is. Okay. So for a long time, well, actually, the Redskins were the most, like for a while, while the the kind of support of the fan base was still, you know, it hadn't been soured so badly by the terrible football. The Redskins were at one point the most profitable franchise in the NFL because he was squeezing every dollar out of it. It wasn't until over time that uh, people started to sort of leave in droves and they were getting, you know, I think I think last year, it was two years ago, they had like their lowest ever attendance at a home opener. It was like under 50,000 for the first time. The revenues were like in the billions for a couple of years and then they slowly sort of bled out to where, you know, he was having to borrow money from the team just to sort of, you know, uh, keep him his own interests afloat. Another example, <laughs> the Redskins uh, sold a hat uh, for profit uh, to commemorate September 11th for the fifth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, the hats were $24 and they were really just a Redskins hat with a blue Pentagon sewn on the side. Uh, that that no no of the, none of the money seemed to be going into the, any charities until uh, they were sort of called out about it, and then Snyder added a four dollar security charge to ticket prices uh, soon after the nine eleven attacks, just to make sure that you know uh, people could be more secure going to Redskins games. Snyder sort of banned pedestrian traffic around FedEx Field uh, in two thousand, basically to force people to pay the parking, parking fees. Right? Yeah, fees. I remember that. The city council uh, sort of got it lifted, and he sort of fought back and and basically said, no, it was a safety concern. He didn't want people to get run down. So it sort of went back and forth several years, and finally, like, uh, they the, the council did undid the ban so that you can actually walk there. Uh, over time, we started to get into, like, this was a lot of, like, petty ticky-tack shit in a lot of ways. Uh, we started to get into sort of worse uh, things into, like, July of 2020. Uh, the Washington Post published a series of articles alleging that over 40 women who were former employees, including workers and cheerleaders, had been sexually harassed and discriminated against by Snyder and other male employees, colleagues, and players on the team. Uh, one of the things that the, was alleged was that the Redskins had um, their cheerleaders fly to like a Caribbean sort of uh, resort somewhere, a retreat, and do a photo shoot. They were pressured to pose topless and in some of the sort of video stuff that was filmed for this shoot, uh, allegedly Snyder, um, like the people involved provide, I guess, provided Snyder with essentially a dirty tape of some of the women, like, you know, when they were changing their clothes or whatever, it was, there's some dispute as to whether Snyder like asked for this or whether it was just provided to him. Uh, but that was kind of the, one of the big allegations is that, um, basically these, cheerleaders were pressured to going to dinner with like high-end clients. So they were pressured to sort of feel like they had, you know, not quite maybe escorts, but they had to sort of entertain uh, Dan's friends and clients and stuff uh, in a very sort of gross. Snyder sounds like a real uh, tried and true boys will be boys kind of guy. Uh, I think that is certainly uh, Yeah, correct. come on, man. It's had, this happens everywhere. Like what a yeah. fucking scumbag, man. Has, has he been married this whole time? He has been married. Yeah, he's been his one wife. So she actually at one point during the congressional investigations was named like the co sort of CEO of the franchise, essentially. So they told Dan that he had to be removed from uh, operations, uh, day to day operations of the football team. But like no divorces, only married. This was no divorces. One one woman was a model uh, introduced by him. uh, Friends who he, um, uh, you know, they've been married for 20 years. I think they have three kids. Uh, in 2021, the Post revealed that Snyder settled uh, with a woman who accused him of a seri- him of a serious case of sexual misconduct. Uh, he agreed to pay her 1.6 million 
The incident occurred on his private jet after he attended the American Country Music Awards. Uh, allegedly, he put his hand on her thigh and pressured her uh, to, um, or tried to pressure her to have sex with him. The investigation by the Post so the investigation by the Post launched this congressional committee. It was a 14-month probe. The House and Oversight and Reform Report found that Snyder gave misleading answers when he testified about all the controversies surrounding his workplace. Uh, he accused Snyder, they accused Snyder of paying former employees hush money so they wouldn't come forward with their allegations of abuse, which included sexual misconduct, exploitation of women, bullying of men or other appropriate behavior, Jesus. describing it as a commonplace that he was a hands-on owner who had role in nearly every organizational decision. The report also stated that the NFL had not protected workers from sexual harassment and abuse. What really, so for a long time, I think like Washington fans sort of felt like they were being held hostage by Dan. He repeatedly said, you know, I will never step down as the owner. I will never change the name. There's a couple of quotes in here, like you can print that. Never, never, never will I change the name. Eventually, of course, you know, drops the the name under pressure as sort of a, a last uh, effort to sort of save himself. But where things started getting, uh, running a sort of awry with owners is in 2021, reports surfaced that Snyder may have intentionally underreported ticket sales to the NFL and the IRS to pay a smaller share into the NFL's visiting team don't fund. Don't be fucking with their money. Don't, don't fuck with the money. Don't is fuck the number with the money, one Danny. Rule. That's, we're going to get you. It allowed him to keep more of the ticket revenue than he otherwise would, alleging Snyder keeping two separate financial ledgers since at least 2012. <laughs> one he would submit to the NFL and one that showed the actual numbers. God, that's a, that, uh, the problem with him is it's all so obviously premeditated. Yes, you know what I mean? Yes. It's all like it's all scummy and it's all like done consciously and with like so maliciously. Yeah. It's it's and it's so like you're a fucking moron, man. Like don't, you don't think anybody else sees what you're doing. So eventually my friends Don and Seth come and deliver the death blow. Uh, first in a report by Don that says that uh, Snyder may have committed bank fraud and was under federal investigation because he was granted a $55 million line of credit in 2018, and he did not inform the team's board of directors, which was uh, you know, a rule under the law. He tried to hide it in a footnote uh, in one of the team's financial reports, and one of the, the minority investors, the minority owners, uh, saw it, uh, basically like got into an uproar with the NFL, uh, and the NFL essentially paid off the minority owners for what they felt like was a third of the value of their ownership to make it sort of go away. Uh, and then the fall the next thing that sort of came out was that, uh, Dan, I'm just going to read directly from this opening to this, uh, story that many of people have probably read. Uh, Dan Snyder does this thing when he feels cornered, say those who know him well, he paces in a hotel suite or on his super yacht or at the Riverview, his $48 million Virginia estate cradling a drink in one hand. He tells members of his inner circle about the dirt he has accumulated on fellow owners, coaches, executives, and even his own employees. All of stuff he's learned from other sources, including private investigative firms. He never says exactly what he knows, only that in his 23 years as owner of the Washington Commanders, he knows a lot. And then that zero-sum world of billionaires, this is how you survive. Snyder recently told a close associate that he had gathered enough secrets to blow up several NFL owners, the league office, and even Commissioner Roger Goodell. They can't fuck with me, he said privately. <laughs> what a freaking weasel. Which, yeah. going back to the other minority owners, like Fred Smith, the founder and chairman of FedEx, like was one of these guys. He's like, I'm not sure when he bought in or like he sold 
seemingly his his stake in this for so far below market value and partly because he thought like his son Arthur Smith the current Falcons coach at that point was you know a, a tight ends coach or an offensive line coach and then went to the Titans as as offensive coordinator but like thought it was going to hurt his son's uh coaching chances as a head coach if Snyder was talking shit about him all over the league right Yes. One thing this is that his I have, co-owner. Yes. <laughs> One thing that I have learned in covering the NFL is that gossip is currency. And like if someone wants to sort of kill your coaching career, uh, they will be able to do that. Like Belichick has, you know, almost certainly like, you know, wrecked the coaching career of Eric Mangini, you know, for instance. Like even though Mangini wasn't, you know, supposedly the one who reported the Spygate stuff, everyone just sort of believes that. But whatever, you know, the disloyalty of certain people in the NFL has caused you know, lots of careers to, to die. And so I, you know, Fred Smith probably was not wrong to think that, that there would be, you know, it would hurt Arthur's chances for those things. So uh, it's Snyder's a fascinating case for a long time. Jerry Jones was like, you know, Snyder's buddy, you know, they would sort of party, they would hang out together. They, he would kind of help Snyder get influence in NFL circles, but it, it sort of came to, be that even Jones couldn't save Snyder uh, over recent years. And th that's kind of part of what even Jones kind of dissed it and basically said the relationship is not all like hunky dory uh, between us anymore. And so Snyder in the end became sort of a man on an island. And I think a man on a yacht, that the, truly yeah, a man on a yacht. Dodging subpoenas. His, his yacht has a gigantic uh, Supermax theater inside of it, in case you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> Wasn't he like leasing or like charging the team? Or yes, advertising on his jet. Uh, his jet. He yeah. put the Washington logo on like the tail of uh, the jet, and then basically said that was a five million dollar uh, value that uh, the team had to pay him for for advertising. So you know, for the, all those baggage handlers out there that got to see the Washington logo, I'm sure that was worth uh, the payoff. If there's anything you're going to give Dan Schneider credit for, it is the. I mean, sometimes I wish I had this gene, the shamelessness to yes. see an opportunity and, and have zero conscience about like the way it makes you like how bad it will make you look. Well, it doesn't matter. It's still a good deal, you know, like, and You're just still making do it. money. Shamelessness is the greatest superpower in America. It might be honestly, like if you just want to get it, like, it's like, I, I guess that would be the only thing i would that the only compliment i could give him is like man sometimes i wish i could do that i think snyder would probably get along well with, with the haslams so that you know it, it took a certain level of shamelessness to uh to do uh what they did to you know all the all the trucking companies out there with the rebates allegedly but it, it, the background in his childhood and his uncoolness growing up probably it, it's like if you've well everybody's always hated me so it's not like it's going to change you, you know like I don't, I, I don't owe anybody anything because everybody hates me. It just gets reinforced over and over and over again. And finally, he self-destructs. Do you think there's a chance that like he tries to back out of this Josh Harris deal and tries to do something where you know he does try to sell it to the Saudis or the, or the Qataris or somebody? I mean, the only thing that probably the guiding that is the NFL would have to approve the deal. And so, you know, he certainly knows that. Uh, you know, I will say like... Is, uh, Alex Kirshner wrote a, like a thing in Slate where people are saying, "Oh, Snyder's going to win." He's he's in essentially he's getting six billion dollars. You know, he, he's tripled or you know made six times his investment. 
really, this is such a humiliating move for Snyder. Like I don't, it, it's Alex was basically making the point of, this is not a win for someone who, you know, wanted to set a more than be wealthy through professional sports, wanted a seat at the table, wanted to be cool is exactly what Neil said. And like, this is giving up your chance to be cool. Like he got to, he got to be buddies with Tom Cruise through like owning the Washington team and, and the finance, the movie Valkyrie as a, you know, part of his buddy or as an executive <laughs> oh producer. Or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we didn't really hit on the football stuff. So I just want to take a quick spin through some anecdotes that, uh, this is my old colleague, John Keim at ESPN compiled just some sort of the greatest hits of Snyder's tenure as a football uh, person in 1999. Washington clinched its first NFC East title since 1991. This was kind of maybe the high point of, of Snyder's thing, maybe other than the RG3 era. Uh, but uh, he he said during the season, he told Mike Nolan, his defensive corner, how much he disliked uh, his vanilla defense. And he dumped vanilla ice cream on Nolan's desk. Uh, it was sort of like like 30 gallons of vanilla ice cream that was melting on Nolan's desk and said, this is what I, I don't appreciate, vanilla. <laughs> God. Again, goes back to trying to be like, this is what cool people do. This is what the, the heart, the, you know, the, this uh, is how you really hammer at home. Yeah. Man. This is how you drive the team to success. Like you no. do, you know, you do stuff like this, symbolic things. In 2000, Snyder went on a sort of a massive spending spree. He's very much a quick fix kind of guy. Like money can solve every problem. Uh, so he signed uh, in one season, off season, Deion Sanders to a seven year deal worth fifty six million dollars. Uh, th- this is like tail end of Deion Sanders, and that was when Spurrier was the coach, right? Uh, I think I think we're maybe getting to that Spurrier era. So he also signed uh, Bruce Smith, remember the great defensive yeah. player for the Bills, and Mark Carrier for the Bears, and then Jeff George uh, and and Andre Reed. So it was basically like. A who's who of like old dudes from like the Washed early, up expensive yeah, dudes. the mid nineties and stuff. I mentioned this earlier. You had a basically like a twenty year lease with Frostburg State University that Jacket Cook had signed, where the team would have its training camp there, and he basically just broke it and said, "Fuck you, sue me," uh, and eventually ended up giving a million dollar payout to Frostburg State to sort of satisfy the the breaking of the contract. Uh, and they said they by honoring them they took the million dollars and named like their facility after jet Kick cook as like a fuck you to stan um he tried to hire at one point pepper rogers who was like uh an, a, basically a yes man one of his friends who had never coached at any level uh and the players revolted and he had to hire terry rubisky instead uh when he fired uh i think it was norv turner uh so the pepper rogers is a name that comes up in a lot of like circles is like the ultimate uh, yes, man. Neil, you are correct. I think Spurrier was the coach after Terry Rubisky. Spurrier was just an epic disaster of a coach. I think he went like, uh, was like 12 and 20. Uh, he, he had $15 million left on his three-year deal and he resigned because he just didn't want to work for <laughs> Snyder, Snyder anymore. God, can you imagine Spurrier and Snyder interacting? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. The Sean Taylor thing, uh, you know, sh- Obviously, like one of the low points of the franchise when Sean Taylor gets killed. The thing in, in DC media, which I sort of am a little bit tied into just because a lot of friends of the Post and living so close there, every time the Fredskins are facing like a PR crisis, they do something to like honor Sean Taylor. So like they'll be like, oh, 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 like with this congressional investigation. Well, guess what? This weekend we're inducting Sean Taylor in the Hall of Fame. Or guess what? We're unveiling a statue of Sean Taylor. So uh, Sean Taylor, you know, he died in 2007. 
right in the midst of like all the latest shit show recently, they unveiled the Sean Taylor statue, which you might've seen on Twitter. It was basically like someone had gotten like a wire statue out of Dick's sporting goods. And like, I mean, it was terrible. It was, it was wearing like Adidas shoes, which Sean Taylor never wore and like the wrong color gloves. And the face mask was like, one of the things you remember most about Sean Taylor's face mask is like the cool tape that he had on it. It was just like a, such a menacing dude. All of that was totally inaccurate. It was like a scene out of Veep, uh, sort of put together. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you remember Albert Hainsworth, the oh, the Redskins yeah. signed they signed him to an, an NFL record, like the highest deal in NFL history, a hundred year, hundred million. Uh, Albert Hainsworth basically stopped coming to work, like quiet quit on the Redskins because he didn't like the way that he was being used. They, he sold seats in the stadium that had obstructed views that were like three, four thousand dollar seats. When this behind the pillars, fans, yeah, yeah, behind the pillars, so you couldn't see uh, things. Um, just cycled through like a series of of coaches. And he traded for Donovan McNabb. I don't know if you remember this, like a second and fourth round pick uh, with the game. Your boy Kyle, Kyle Shanahan objected to the trade at the time uh, and tried to bench McNabb for McNair, and McNabb pouted a, a stun. And so Dan rewarded McNabb as a sort of a like a makeup kiss and makeup deal with an 88 million dollar 88 million dollar contract and McNabb was released later that year oh my god yeah there's just there's too much football stuff to really go into obviously like the RG3 trade uh the one sort of anecdote that I can personally offer to this is uh, I wrote a story about Kirk Cousins years ago at ESPN the magazine and when RG3 was like injured briefly in that rookie year, Cousins uh, came in and and played really well, like led them to like four straight victories that sort of kept them in the playoff hunt that year. And the first game he threw for like 300 yards and like, you know, four touchdowns, whatever. And the, the biggest concern that uh, Snyder had in that moment was that RG3 was going to be pouting, he was going to be upset. So he came into the locker room after the game and Kirk was like sitting there and Snyder just like tapped him on the shoulder and was like, good job, good job. And like zoomed right by him to go right over to RG3 and then like crept down, knelt down in front of RG3 and was like, don't worry, like this doesn't mean anything. Like you're still like, you're still our guy. And Kirk was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like he, he felt totally like insulted and that sort of like years later when cousins was like you know they were trying to get him to sign a long-term deal like that that still hung a little bit in the air of like yeah you've never thought i was the guy you never gave a shit uh, about me there was a whole debacle of shanahan basically like pressuring rg3 to play in the um, playoff game and he tears his acl it's never the same again uh you know the shanahan's always wanted to play cousins instead of rg3 when rg3 was trying to rehab it turned into a big sort of fight uh basically santana moss um, for that piece told me that year that like the directive came down from Dan that you have to play RG3. Uh, and so it was just like the whole team kind of revolted over the whole deal. Dan was always kind of like messing with this stuff. A lot of people think that, um, you know, Bruce Allen, uh, Snyder's kind of right-hand man, uh, who he basically only hired because he loved his dad, uh, who was sort of a Redskins legend, that he's the person who leaked the the John Gruden emails uh, that came out in the New York Times where Gruden was sort of saying racist, sexist things about DeMaury Smith and various, you know, people around the league and various players. Uh, just in, like a, so much of like we joke about like succession and like, you know, the Snyder's organizations basically run like if the Roy's were like even more incompetent, like if you sort of cross reference them with, you know, the Trumps or whatever, an organization that constantly manages to like do really well, embarrassing if, things. And if like there's no there's no patriarchal figure mm -hmm. either mm -hmm. who's like built this from scratch. It's like there's there's just this dipshit son without a dad almost, you know? 
I mean, there's other things, but it's just like, it's a greatest hits of like stupidity. I mean, Trent Williams, who's like one of their greatest players of all time, basically like accused the organization of, of malfeasance when they didn't detect like a giant cancer lesion he had on his head. Uh, and he, they wouldn't like let him sit out of games as he sort of got it, you know, looked at from a third party. They wanted him to play. He basically was like, fuck you. I'm not playing for this organization ever again. When the NFLPA did that survey where they surveyed all of the, uh, you got the rat infestation. Here. Yeah. Rat attacks. <laughs> yeah. So Washington, even though as bad as the rat invitation was in Jacks, Washington was the only team to receive multiple F minuses that like <laughs> their facilities F minus their, their, uh, can't like training room F minus, uh, their, you know, uh, I think it was their medical staff F minus conditioning guy. I think, <laughs> yeah, it was just up and down the board and all the time Snyder kind of always tries to do various things to sort of, you know, seem like he's this super progressive owner, you know, he's the first person to hire a sort of team president, his woman, you know, as an African-American man, you know, to sort of run the, you know, the personnel stuff. But it's always sort of seen as like him trying to just basically like get like that momentary PR win. It's a, uh, it's all transparent. For, it's all so shallow. Uh, as Tron alluded to earlier, over the objections of their college scouting department, they drafted Dwayne Haskins in part because he'd gone to the same school as uh, Snyder's son. Uh, and there was a lot of speculation that like, you know, they were just buddies and the, the son wanted someone to hang out with. No, I know this guy. I know this guy. He's, he's a, he's, he's the future. I, I watched yeah. him play in high school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When the, the minority franchise thing, you know, essentially like the NFL, uh, we were talking about too, alluded to sort of buying them out at like 40% of like what their, what they thought the actual value was. It was something like the estimated value of the uh, franchise was like that they owned was like 900 million and they ended up having to settle for like 300, you know, $375 million or something. Yeah. Imagine taking that, that big of a loss just because the NFL is sort of like leaning on you a little bit like, hey, we'd really like this to to go away. So what's interesting will be, is see is even if Snyder leaves, you know, these um, congressional probes will still go on. Uh, obviously is the, he still liable if like for civil stuff on the congressional probes or, or does uh, that stay with the team? I'm pretty sure that he would still be liable. That's, that's maybe something, you know, we should ask or look into. It's, it's I mean, certainly he's going to be liable for the federal investigation into the bank fraud uh, that he may allegedly has committed by, taking out this loan without getting, uh, you know, a sh approval of the board. Uh, you know what I look forward to in, uh, you know, his free time is maybe, maybe a burner showing up on the refuge, you know, after this pod <laughs> goes up just to, you know, similar to what he was doing on the, uh, Redskins for or the commander's forums back in the day. Some high crime neighborhoods. Yeah. On some the refuge, pig Latin the handles. <laughs> hey, what's this guy's really riding for Dan Schneider. What the hell? Yeah. Uh, the other death blow, I think, was kind of when uh, Jim Irsay came out and said, essentially, at the NFL owners meeting, I believe there's some merit to remove Snyder as an owner. I unfortunately, I believe that's the road we probably need to go down. We just need to finish the investigation. But it's gravely concerning to me the things that have occurred here over the last 20 years. Uh, that was like such a break of like the kind of, you know, Tector of, uh, yeah, un, unwritten rules of NFL owners, like don't yeah. ever sort of shit on someone in public. And even though Ursay is like sort of a wild card and, you know, has had a lot of his own issues, issues. We'll, we'll get to we'll him. Get to, <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely, the Ursay we'll is going to be get uh, to him. Uh, well, high on my draft board of teams. I'd like to, to their owners I'd like to dig into, but that was, that was sort of seen as like a watershed moment of like, okay, shit is really serious. Like, and probably why Snyder, uh, I would say, in my opinion, was probably leaning towards selling because he didn't want to deal with the humiliation of potentially 
you know, you need publicly three quarters of the ownership votes you out, then you can lose your team and stuff. So, so that's Dan Snyder. I think there's, I'm sure there's a ton of shit we didn't cover, but you know, he, his is really like the, one of the most exhaustive things of, you know, malfeasance and stupidity that you can imagine American ownership. I'm sure once he sells, it's like we could, we could get some people on to do like a grab bag episode of different anecdotes and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, I've great. got one one more thing on Steve Ross. Okay. Uh, he started the Apogee Club with uh, Neil's boy, uh, Mike Pascucci, who started okay. uh, Sabonic. Um, wow. And they, they have hired – It's they've got three courses that they're building right now. They've hired away the general manager from Wingfoot, Colin Burns, who actually hmm. used to work with his daughter at the Ritz-Carlton. Um, and they, they've hired Gil Hans to do the first course – Tommy Fazio and Mike Davis to do the second course. Mike and, Davis. Uh, I can't remember who they've hired for the third course, but um, but yeah, I just I don't know. I thought that was where is the exceptionally Apogee interesting. Oh, and Kyle Phillips as well. Uh, it is in it's outside of Palm Beach uh, or like Hope Sound. Um, yeah, so I just the the Tommy Fazio, Mike Davis, Stephen Ross triumvirate just the, the collab we didn't know happy. we needed. Exactly. All right, you guys, uh, we'll cut it there. I, I think, you know, a, a nice two hours and 30 minutes of, of, of good stuff. <laughs> Banger to start out the series. All right. What a, what a delightful deep dive, guys. Thanks for indulging me in this uh, semi-perfect club, semi-trap draw hybrid. Uh, we'll, we'll get to some more owners if, the, oh, yeah. if this is a hit with people. Oh, yeah. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who 